Today I speak with Shadi Hamid. Shadi is a senior fellow at Brookings, and he's a contributing writer for The Atlantic, and he's published widely in other journals. Most recently, he's written a wonderful book entitled Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle over Islam is Reshaping the World. And I highly recommend that, and we get into all of these issues. His analysis, as you'll hear, doesn't totally align with mine or with Majid Nawaz's. So it was interesting. And I've been wanting to get Shadi on the podcast for a while because he really is a novel voice in this area. A real political scientist who doesn't make the usual political science noises on the topic, especially on the role that religion plays in inspiring human violence. So without further preamble, I give you Shadi Hamid. So I'm here with Shadi Hamid. Shadi, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. Tell our listeners a little bit about your background and the kind of work you've been doing. Yeah, sure. So I'm um, currently I'm a, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. I work on Islamist movements and more broadly the role of Islam in politics. And um, I'm, I'm born and raised in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. Um, my parents, uh, my parents came from Egypt in the 1970s. I mean, there's, there's a lot more to say about how I sort of came to do what I do, but I guess, um, two of the crucial moments for me were 9-11 and then the Iraq war. So mm -hmm. I went, you know, before 9-11, I probably, I think I, I did actually want to just be an investment banker or something normal like that. 9-11 happens and that sort of sets me along the path that, has led me really to where I am right now. Nice. And, and you have this, this really illuminating book, Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World, which we will get into. Is this your first book or you have a, a book before this? It's my second. Uh, my previous book, which came out in 2014, uh, it's called Temptations of Power. Mm. And it's, it's more focused on Islamist movements before and after the Arab Spring and their evolution. Before we get into the book, how would you describe yourself politically and religiously at this point? So I consider myself on the left, um, on the liberal left. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm, as you can probably guess, I wasn't a Donald Trump supporter mm -hmm. and probably won't be anytime soon. Um, I consider myself, I self-define as a Muslim, as an American Muslim. And um, that's, you know, part of my identity. And um, although I think I write more as a analyst or a political scientist who happens to be Muslim, but I think as of late, because events in the Middle East and in the U.S. with the rise of someone like Donald Trump, it, some of my work, I think, has become more personal. And I think I've become more comfortable you know, speaking as not just an analyst, but as an American Muslim who is directly affected by some of the proposals that are out there on things like, you know, a Muslim registry, for example. So I think I think more of that personal side has come out in my work. And there's actually more of that um, in the new book compared to, say, the previous one. I don't know how familiar you are with my work in general or what I've said about Islam in particular. 
you certainly won't find a friend of Donald Trump in me. <laughs> That's good to hear. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and I know you're aware. I, I know you noticed my my happy meeting with Ben Affleck because you you mentioned it in the book. I expect we'll disagree about a few things, but I want to start on a point where we really fully agree, and, and that's the, the link between sincere religious belief and behavior. And I actually want to read a passage from your book sure, because it was such a relief to read this. In a September 2014 statement, the Islamic State spokesman Abu Musab al-Adnani expounded on the group's inherent advantages, quote, being killed is a victory, he said. You fight a people who can never be defeated. They either gain victory or are killed. End quote. Now this is back to you. In this sense, religion matters, and it matters a great deal. As individuals, most, although not necessarily all, Islamic State fighters on the front line are not only willing to die in a blaze of religious ecstasy, they welcome it. It doesn't particularly matter if this sounds absurd to us. It's what they believe. But this basic point about intention and motivation applies not only to extremist groups, but to mainstream Islamist movements like the Muslim Brotherhood, that in stark contrast to the Islamic State, contest elections and work within the democratic process. As one Brotherhood official would often remind me, many join the movement so they can, quote, get into heaven. Yep. Discussing his own reasons for joining, he told me, quote, I was far from religion and this was unsettling. Islamists resolved it for me, end quote. There's a few more words from you here. We might be tempted to dismiss such pronouncements as irrational bouts of fancy. But if you look at it another way, what could be more rational than wanting eternal salvation? It would be a mistake then to view Islamist groups as traditional political parties. I guess I can stop there. It is such a relief to see someone talking honestly about this. And I want to talk about the reasons why people become obscurantist on this point. But I mean, are you aware of the novelty here of seeing someone like yourself both for two reasons, both having an academic background as a political scientist and being a Muslim, to see people in either of those camps calling a spade a spade here is is a deeply novel phenomenon? Well, I think it's sort of sad to me that it's novel. I don't think it should be. But um, look, I, there's a lot of discomfort in talking about religion. And I see that especially with my colleagues on the left, who I think are very well-intentioned and well-meaning. And I have to say that when I heard Ben Affleck um, on that, you know, now famous uh, program with you and Bill Maher, my initial reaction was to cheer him on. I was happy that here's someone, a famous actor and director, who's actually defending Muslims on national TV. That doesn't happen so often, right? But then when I thought a little bit more about what he was saying, I, I, I could realize that this is actually a pretty vacuous statement. So he pretty much said, um, you know, Muslims are just like us. They want to raise their kids. They And the part that sort of amused me, which I mentioned in the book, is, um, and they want to eat sandwiches too. Mm -hmm. As if you, as if, you know, um, wanting to eat sandwiches and wanting to implement Islamic law are two things that can go together. I know people who do eat sandwiches, but also believe in the implementation of Sharia. So I think, but I, I have to say that I've changed myself over time. So if you had talked to me, I think six or seven years ago, I would have, I think, focused less on religion as a kind of contributing factor but after spending so much time in the Middle East and spending hundreds of hours really 
talking to Islamist members and leaders and really trying to get to know them on a personal level and immersing myself in their world, I, you know, it started to become more and more clear that religion matters more than I think a lot of us are comfortable admitting. And I think this the statement you just quoted from the Brotherhood official, it's really stuck with me. Um, I think he, he probably told me that, yeah, that was pre-Arab Spring. And it stays with me now because when I think about my own graduate work um, in political science seminars, we never talked about paradise. Mm. And, we're, and we don't know how to talk about paradise because it's not tangible. We can't measure it. But um, so that's why I think you know, we have to sort of bring religion back into the conversation, but in a nuanced way, in a careful way. And I should also kind of offer a disclaimer here. And I think, you know, I mentioned this in the first chapter of the book. I'm I'm slightly uncomfortable with some of my own conclusions. And that's why I do think a lot about how to present the arguments of the book to a popular audience, because when I started writing it, it was before the Trump moment. It was before anti-Muslim bigotry got as bad as it currently is. And I'm just, I want to be attuned to the risk that some could misuse my arguments for purposes that I'm not comfortable with. Yeah, yeah. Well, you and you and I both have that particular liability. So yeah, I, I want to be sensitive to that as well. I want to linger on this point of why people systematically discount the role of religion here, because it strikes me as the first problem that that we need to overcome. Until you can reason honestly about what's going on in, in our world and, and what is actually motivating people who are hostile to the most basic values of civil society, there's just no way to, to even move forward with it with a plan about how to address this problem. We'll just see if we, we differ in, in the kinds of remedies we imagine are, are possible. But the first issue here is that, and that you discuss this a little bit in your book, most secular academics and journalists and you know otherwise smart people have no idea what it's like to really believe in God, much less in a paradise that awaits martyrs after death. So it seems to me that they just this leads to a a, a very basic failure of empathy. I mean, they just they just doubt that anyone actually believes this stuff, and perversely, no demonstration of sincerity is sufficient. I mean, it is apparently insufficient for there to be an endless supply of suicide bombers, for there to be an endless supply of people who are willing to get on video and talk about their expectation of paradise and then blow themselves up. That, as I've you know, long lamented, I mean, now it's been 15 years that I've been talking about this, that is somehow rhetorically insufficient to establish somebody's sincere belief in paradise. What you have in the social sciences generally, and in and just among non-religious people or or people who are religious in a very liberal and mod moderate sense that would be unrecognizable to most people in the Middle East, you have people assuming that everyone is motivated by rational concerns and that all rational concerns are at bottom terrestrial concerns. But one thing you point out, which is very important to distinguish, is that if paradise exists, right? Or if you really believe that paradise exists, trying to get there is perfectly rational. In fact, one could argue it's the only rational aim, right? It's a, you know, nothing, anything that happens in 70 years here can't be of much consequence when put on the balance against what's going to happen for eternity. So 
the dividing line isn't between reason and unreason necessarily here on this point. It's just if you buy into these beliefs, your rational priorities are, by definition, otherworldly. And that's, that is something that people who think everything at bottom must be economic or political just fundamentally discount or overlook or otherwise deceive themselves about. Exactly. And I think that, you know, so I live in in D.C. Um, I grew up outside of Philadelphia. I spent most of my time, at least in the U.S. and in major cities. And um, it's it's so striking how few people are in those kinds of liberal elite circles, if you will, can really relate to the kind of to the it's not just to the role of religion. It's something almost beyond that. It's the everyday magic of religion for people who believe in it. Mm. And it, it, it's so it's hard to describe. And this is why sometimes I struggle to describe it, because unless you're actually immersed in that world and spend time with people who understand the world in those terms, it can be hard to relate to. And I think that even if you spend time with Christian evangelicals, that will help in some ways, but and this gets to you know one of the main arguments of my book that um, Islam is fundamentally different than Christianity. So that will get you maybe halfway there or something. Mm. But Christianity isn't quite the same thing as Islam, and I almost feel sort of I almost feel feel a little bit weird or foolish in saying that because it's kind of self-evident that different religions are different from each other. But even that, I think, can can be controversial in some circles. But I think then the real challenge for those of us who come from a secular background, who are born and raised in the West, is to kind of go outside of our comfort zone and make an extra effort to understand those who are who are coming from a different religious vantage point. The other thing that I would say is even the way we're talking about this and we can't help it because we have to use words, we have to use a certain vocabulary, even the way we distinguish between quote unquote religion and quote unquote politics is itself problematic in my view, mm. because the, the two, at least from the standpoint of Muslim believers, in say the Middle East, the two are endlessly intertwined. And that's and that's something that I had to sort of um, come to understand a little bit more. So if you ask a member of, let's say, the Muslim Brotherhood to give an example, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you participating in these parliamentary elections? Why are you going to this protest against the Mubarak regime? Is it because of religious motivations or is it because of political motivations? That person will almost certainly struggle to make a clear distinction between the two, because in his or her own mind, the two cannot be separated the way that I think we as products of a post-enlightenment society we do that. We're comfortable doing that, um, and it 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 it's so and it it's so implicit or even explicit in in the way we talk about these things in the media, in public discourse, in the U.S. or Europe, that we don't even realize that we're doing it. Yeah, well, I, I want to get into what's the heart of your thesis: this what makes Islam exceptional, and it's right in the title of your book. And so, so we need to differentiate it from other religions and, and perhaps Christianity in particular on, on a few points. 
But I want to linger with this fundamental lack of empathy or lack of understanding of of just how deep and self-consistent and on some level rewarding a religious worldview is in this context. You were almost one of these people who couldn't get a handle on what was going on there. And, and, and I want to read another passage in your book, which just struck me as, as just, again, novel for its, its insight into what is actually going on and the, the cognitive and, and imaginative work people outside of these cultures have to do in order to understand what's going on. So you say here, despite my best efforts, however, the one element I continue to struggle with is what might be called the willingness to die. If I had joined a protest in a not-so-democratic country and the army was moving in with live fire, there would be little debate. I'd run for the hills. And that's why my time interviewing Brotherhood activists in Rabah just days before the massacre took place was at once fascinating and frightening. It forced me to at least try to transcend my own limitations as an analyst. And then you go on with a, a Brotherhood spokesman who told me that he was very much at peace, he was ready to die, and I knew that he and so many others weren't just saying it, because many of them, more than 800, did in fact die. And then you go on to, to wonder about where this willingness to die comes from. This is a passage where, I, you know, even to my, to my eye, you, you fall, however subtly, into the trap of one who can't quite believe what he's hearing. And, <laughs> and, and so you write, where does this willingness to die come from? One Brotherhood activist, now unable to return to Egypt, told me the story of an activist who was standing on the front lines when the military began dispersing the Rabah sit-in. A bullet grazed his shoulder. Behind him, a young man fell to the ground. The man had been shot to death. The activist looked over to see what had happened and began to cry. He could have died a martyr. He knew the man behind him had gone to heaven in God's glory. This is what he longed for, and it had been denied him. Aspects of the story were, I assume, apocryphal. But the basic point is an important one. This wasn't politics in the normal sense of the word. Now, your assumption that that, that the story was apocryphal—I don't know if there were other <laughs> cues to this to, to to suggest that—but there's no reason to think it was generically. I, I'm sure you've read Lawrence Wright's book, *The Looming Tower*. Yeah, those stories of Al Qaeda essentially doing the same thing—we just just weeping tears of envy over their fallen comrades in Afghanistan, and even taking absurd risks in an apparent attempt to get themselves martyred, I mean, those stories are a dime a dozen. It's just a sincere belief in paradise gets you there in, insofar as you manage to, to embrace it. So, yeah, you're right. I, I do struggle with this still. Um, so f- I guess one distinction I would make is that um, members of, of Al-Qaeda or ISIS, for that matter, um, they are more actively trying to die in a sense. So, and, and they're not just willing to die. They're also willing to kill, which is a, a you know, which is a dif- difference as well. So when I'm talking about brotherhood activists in a, in a primarily peaceful protest situation, these are not people who are necessarily going there to die. That's not their primary objective. Their primary objective was to try to get the new military, government after the coup of 2013 to go back to the barracks and to reinstate Mohammed Morsi, the the elected Islamist president, back into office. So for them, there was a very tangible political goal. And I have no doubt that they thought, at least initially, 
that if they held out for long enough and they had large enough protests and sit-ins in various parts of the country, that this would put enough pressure on the military. So I think understanding how the political goals intertwine with the very real religious goals, mm. which are mentioned in the passage, are, are still important. And, you know, I also, people people want to retroactively make sense of something after the fact. So I can't be 100% sure of, of what these one or two individuals were thinking in the exact moment, but I know it because I too do this sometimes, that in retrospect, I invest certain acts with more meaning than they actually had at the time because we all want to make our lives grander in a way. We, 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 um, all of us are searching for a kind of epic meaning, for a kind of narrative arc to our own stories. So when this brotherhood member is telling me this story after, um, either before the fact or after the fact, so I left Egypt two days before the massacre happened, and I talked to people afterwards, right? And they were trying to make sense of what happened. And they're trying to offer a narrative arc, not just to me, but I think also to themselves, mm. if that makes sense. I would certainly grant you that there is a significant distinction between the Brotherhood and the kinds of people who would be likely to join it and a group like Al-Qaeda or ISIS or any other you know, classical jihadist group. And it's a, it's a distinction, as you know, that you put a lot of weight on because it's, you almost talk about the Brotherhood as the mainstream alternative to jihadism. And some version of this Islamism needs to be embraced or at least accepted. And I think that's we will definitely get there because that is a, a controversial and interesting point. But again, I, I just want to linger on the Western secular liberal doubt about this phenomenon because I'm not even sh I'm not sure you understand how delusional this skepticism is among academics and how deep it runs. So for instance, I noticed that you cite the work of the anthropologist Scott Atran at various points yeah. in, in your book. I can see what, why you would do that. He has he's certainly said several useful things in this area. But I mean, he is also has been a reliable obscurantist on this point. And as he and I once got into what almost amounted to a fight on a panel at the Salk Institute, this is about 10 years ago. And I, mean, I just couldn't believe the kinds of things he was saying about the irrelevance of religious belief to the phenomenon of jihadist terrorism. I and mean, he just was going to the mat for religion being a non-variable, right? Mm, yeah. So at one point, we, we found ourselves in the, in the men's room together, and I, and I, just, <laughs> I, I just looked at him and I said, Scott, you mean to tell me that nobody has ever blown himself up with the expectation of arriving in paradise? Is that what you actually think? And he said, yes, that's right. Nobody believes in paradise. Full stop. Okay, so Sam, I have to I have to ask you because I do I do actually remember very vividly reading that on your blog some time back. Yeah. And I remember actually tweeting it, I think. And I I had to read it several times because I couldn't actually believe that Scott Atran it's hard for me to believe that he would actually believe that and I I I can't make sense of it. So if you have any insights into what what he was trying to tell you, I mean that would be interesting. Well, on some level, he was just trying to tell me to fuck off. I mean the the, <laughs> the only exculpatory interpretation or or the only interpretation that I can make of what he said, which is compatible with his sanity, really, is that he was telling me 
to fuck off in terms he knew I would see as provocative and that it was not an honest statement of what he believes. But in fact, when, when you look at how he's attacked me for things I've said about Islam and, and when you look at the points of debate we've had in public, it is in line with everything else he said. I mean, so he went on at the SAW conference to say that the best predictor of whether someone was going to join a jihadist cell was not their religious beliefs or any you know, prior indoctrination, but whether they were a member of a soccer team, right? So it's, I mean, his thesis <laughs> is that it's affiliation among, quote, fictive kin, you know, young men who bond and care about the esteem that, with which their co-evils hold them. And that's what gets you to you know, push the plunger on your suicide vest. Now, I don't need to spend a lot of time on a tran here, but I've pointed out previously all the moves he makes to discount the very obvious emergence of religion as a variable, even within his own data, even when he's got jihadists telling him about God, he manages to ignore all that. But yeah, no, he he clearly thinks, and there are other people like this, he's just, I, I just mentioned him just because I saw him in your book, he clearly thinks that this is a matter of the quasi-terrestrial concern of caring about your reputation among your friends. And I would never dis- discount that as, a, as an important variable in conflict or in war. I mean, it obviously is. It's something that could get a totally secular or, or atheist person to sacrifice his life in combat, you know, in defense of his fellow soldiers. I mean, this is a very ordinary psychological motivation that can can lead to heroic self-sacrifice. But if you're going to deny that the doctrine of Islam is in any way relevant to the phenomenon of jihadism, then it's just God's own miracle that, that we're seeing more Muslims than Amish or Anglicans blow themselves up in these kinds of conflicts, right? It's just, it makes no sense. Or, you know, the cartoon controversy. Why is it, you know, why, why isn't the Book of Mormon leading to beheadings in Times Square after it gets staged? if every religious ideology was equally likely to produce these specific forms of intolerance. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I think it's, in my effort to empathize, let's say, I, I agree with you that it, it's, it seems really absurd to me that anyone could discount religion as an important variable. But I also get where it's coming from in the sense that these are liberal academics who I think are generally well-intentioned and I think they want to make Islam into something it's not. They want, or to put it a little bit differently, they want Muslims to be just like us, in quotation marks, us. And that's what Ben Affleck was trying to do as well, that we have become so uncomfortable with acknowledging difference, as if the fact that we could be different from each other is itself a problem. And that doesn't mm-hmm. just apply to how we view Um, practicing or conservative Muslims, but also how we even view Trump voters, this unwillingness to think that they are motivated by understandable or rational things. And instead, we dismiss them as a bunch of bigots, racists, and deplorables. So in, in that sense, I do see some parallels with this kind of liberal faith in universal values that are not in fact universally held and not just in the Middle East, but also increasingly as we're seeing um, here in the US or in Europe. And I think one of the main challenges going forward is how do we how do we come to terms with difference? 
Yeah, well, I, well, I'm going to want to defend <laughs> universal values, but I, I, I think we should talk about Islamic exceptionalism and talk about difference first. But before that, I, I just want to talk about this obscurantism and the role it has played politically of late, because it's in large measure, and I've said this in the podcast, in large measure, this explains the rise of Trump, or at least this is one of several variables for me that had it been different, wouldn't have given us Trump. The most troubling side of this, and this, this is the, we have this failure of empathy. We have secular people who just don't get it. But then we also have Muslims who very likely do get it. I mean, I'm not saying they're, they're closet Islamists or jihadists, but these are Muslims who actually understand Islam, who reliably lie about its tenets. You know, so the fact that in the immediate aftermath of any terrorist atrocity, you will see someone from CARE jump on CNN and then just lie about Islam, talk about how there's no link between any of its doctrines and jihadism. Jihad is just an inner spiritual struggle, for instance. And then to immediately sound the bell of concern about Islamophobia, right? This, this word that, as far as I can tell, has been consciously engineered very cynically to prevent the very observations of a sort that you have made in your book and that I've been making here, that there is a link between specific ideas, specific doctrines, and specific behaviors that, as we should, as I always remind people, victimize Muslims themselves more than anybody else. I mean, the most common victim of jihadist terrorism is a fellow Muslim who was standing close to the bomb when it went off, right? It's not, it's not yep. you know, non-Muslims who are, for the most part, victims of theocracy and oppression and sectarian violence, as we see it in the Muslim world. So it's this dishonesty. And again, this, this sort of touches close to home because I noticed, you know, Reza Aslan is one of your blurbists. I can't hold you responsible for who, who blurbs your book. But I mean, Reza, again, is someone who, honestly, I, I think he has probably never managed to speak five sentences in succession about Islam without shading the truth or lying outright about it. I mean, I've been in debates with him. I've seen him in interviews on, again, on CNN as a prime offender. And it's just guaranteed obscurantism. Now, it's either, he's, he's, either, he's either confused, which seems incredibly unlikely given that he'll, he also can't go five minutes without emphasizing that he's a scholar of religion, but the list of this rogues gallery is quite long. You have Dahlia Mogahed. You have all these people who are reasonably prominent who will not speak honestly in the way that you have. I would take issue with the word lying. And, I, I, and the idea that people are being dishonest. I don't, I don't, I don't have any sense that, that Reza um, doesn't believe what he's saying. And um, the same goes for Dahlia. Um, I think I think the difference I can only speak for myself. The way mm. that I approach it is a, perhaps a little bit different than say um someone who's part of a Muslim civil rights organization. So after a terrorist attack, it's understandable to me that someone whose job if, if your job is to make Islam look good and to protect the rights of the community, you want to disassociate between ISIS and Islam. I however because, you know, and I, I say this very, very straight up, I am an analyst. I have to be faithful to my findings, even if they make me uncomfortable. 
and it's not my job to make Islam look good. So I actually get this criticism from Muslim friends and family, and even sometimes my mom, she'll tell me, Shadi, you know, when you talk about ISIS, you should be a little bit more careful so people don't get the wrong idea. And we have this ongoing debate. And I totally get where she's coming from, um, because I know that she believes that ISIS is a total 100% distortion perversion of Islam as she knows it. And mm -hmm. for her, it's personal. It's her religion, right? And I would say the same for myself. As an American Muslim, I do believe that ISIS's interpretation is a distorted interpretation of Islam as I understand it, right? So I don't, that's why I think that, and it's sort of my policy in general, when I get in Twitter debates and any kinds of debate, I want to assume that people are not being dishonest and that there is, there is a, a real or rational or reasonable uh, motivation for them arguing the way that they do. And we just happen to disagree on this point. Let me just emphasize my agreement here. I think this principle of charity is incredibly important. I mean, it's the basis of any actual civil conversation about you know hard topics. So I, I totally take your point there. When I call out someone like Reza Aslan, I've seen him violate these norms and the expectation of, of honesty so often, both in public and in private. His capacity for dishonesty is, again, as plain a fact of reality as, as any other you're going to find in, in human behavior. So I, I don't expect you've focused on him as much as I have. But there's a phenomenon of a reliable shading of the truth here. Again, it's not always conscious dishonesty. It could just be confirmation bias or just fear that, as you say, Muslims will be tarred broadly with the same brush. The fear is obviously that if we admit that there's any connection between the behavior of a group like ISIS and actual tenets of the, the mainstream religion of Islam, well, then there's nothing to stop a slide into, quote, Islamophobia or you know, more bigotry against Muslims. And we have a president of the United States who's clearly operating under that assumption and who will never say anything honest about the link between religious ideology and jihad. And you know, Hillary Clinton is I mean, one of the reasons why I, th I think her candidacy was so flawed was that she was the sort of candidate who, in the immediate aftermath of the Orlando massacre, which was, you know, it took about 15 minutes to figure out that was an instance of jihadist violence, all she could speak about were our gun laws and sanctimoniously warn us about a rise in Islamophobia. So Donald Trump, as odious a character as he is, I would argue is I mean, one of his saving graces and again, I'm a, I'm an, perhaps I'm unusually in touch with this because I've spoken so much about Islam that I have a you know a fan base that, insofar as there was a single issue voter out there who was just concerned about speaking honestly about this problem of jihadism and, and Islamism, I'm in touch with those people. And I can tell you, there are a lot of people out there, including some Muslims, including my friend Azra Nomani, the, who you may know, the journalist, yeah. who supported Trump because of this issue alone, because he just stood up and said, listen, I don't understand Islam you know, any better than you do, but there's clearly something going on here, and we have a president who's lying about it. Now, that, as big of a con man as Trump is, that statement taken on its own was you know, a true breath of fresh air. Now, it, you know, it's connected to a policy prescription that 
doesn't make a lot of sense and probably would cause immense harm, you know, attempting not to let any Muslims into the country. But still, this is where political correctness has gotten us on this topic. And it remains a huge problem. My concern now with the rise of Trump is that because of everything that's wrong with you know, the, the right-hand side of the political spectrum, we are going to witness a, a pendulum swing leftward, and there will be more dishonesty on this point from the left rather than more honesty. And you'll have everyone doubling down on essentially lies about the motivations of jihadists. And I've been saying this for years and years, that if the only honest talk about jihad is coming from the right, you are going to push increasingly fearful people rightward, no matter how ugly the right is on every other topic. And we're witnessing this with the migrant crisis in Europe. We're witnessing it with, you know, I would argue with Trump in large measure. So like the, the Southern Poverty Law Center, right, which if ever we needed the Southern Poverty Law Center to occupy the moral high ground and to be sane and ethical and wise, we need them now with a super-empowered white nationalist movement in, in the U.S. for the first time in a generation. And yet they just added Ayan Hirsi Ali and Majid Nawaz to a list of so-called anti-Muslim extremists, right? So you know, in addition to the yeah. KKK, we should worry about Majid Nawaz and Ayan Hirsi Ali. It's complete insanity, and yet this is what the left has done to us on this topic. Well, that's why I think it's it's incredibly crucial right now for us to find a middle ground, and that's really what I, you know I'm trying to do with this book. Is there's got to be something in between the kind of political correctness of the left and what I consider to be the very problematic approach of some on the right who want to make Islam into some kind of um, Islam is the problem or even Islamism is the problem and to fail to make what I think are important distinctions. So I think there's something in between. And um, and I know and I realize that it's not a very popular place to be, which is why this book has pissed off people on, on both sides of the spectrum and kind of in between as well. But I feel like I, I want to do what I can to find that middle ground and encourage other people to search for it. And I'm not under any illusion that people are going to agree with the entirety of my argument. Um, but um, I, I hope that we can at least start to have that conversation. And, you know, with I mean, because these issues will be an issue pretty much pretty much for the rest of our lives. We mm -hmm. will be facing the scourge of terrorism and extremism for as long as we live. I don't believe terrorism is something you can eliminate. It's something you can reduce to the best of your ability. But we're going to have to deal with a lot of this. And we have and that's why we have to have this conversation, you know, sooner rather than later. Yeah, well, so I want to talk to you ultimately about this, this very provocative comment that that not only can't Islam be the problem, but perhaps Islamism can't even be the problem. And that, that's where you seem to take a, a slightly different path than, than I take or that, you know, my friend and colleague Majid Nawaz takes. Yeah. We got to get there. But before we do, I want you to educate us a little bit on a few points. And this, this goes to the really the, the, the first principle of your thesis, that Islam is in some way exceptional. And so you, you say things like, for instance, that there's, there's nothing equivalent to Sharia in Christianity. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Well, one thing I should just mention, which, is, which may be of interest, is that 
because of the political correctness around this topic, the book's title was actually going to be different until like the very last moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what was it going to be? Really, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a lame title. I, I, I've mentioned it elsewhere so I can tell you, but we, we were going to call it The Last Caliphate, mm -hmm. which sounds kind of poetic and literary, but what the heck does it mean? I had an idea about what it meant, but ultimately I, I wanted the argument to be right there and I wanted to own it. I thought, look, I'm going, I'm spending a big part of my life writing this book. I can't hide away from my own argument. So let me own it, even though even the very notion of exceptionalism is going to anger a lot of people, especially in academia, where, oh, my God, exceptionalism. Shadi is a neo-Orientalist or an essentialist, and I've gotten those charges. Mm. But anyway, the argument that I'm making, um, to put it, I guess, simply is that um, Islam is, in fact, exceptional, and but not just in any way, because I think it should go without saying that all religions are different from other religions in some way. But I'm arguing that Islam is exceptional in a specific set of ways that matter 14 centuries after its founding. So specifically in, in its relationship to law, politics, and governance. And what that means in practice, but also in theory, is that Islam has proven to be resistant to secularization. And I would argue it will continue to be resistant to secularization for the foreseeable future for reasons that we can't easily dismiss. And we can talk about some of them. And the implications of that, I think, are important because what it does mean is that hopes for some kind of future reformation or some kind of linear trajectory where Islam goes through what Christianity did. So reformation, then enlightenment, then secularism towards the end of history of liberal democracy. I, I don't think that's a helpful way of looking at Islam, because why why would Islam follow the same trajectory as Christianity if it's a different religion, right? And this goes to your point about there being no equivalent of Sharia and Christianity, which is why I think it is very hard to talk about Sharia in America or Europe, because it's just really different and it's really complicated. And um, the closest equivalent, at least in Catholicism, is canon law, but canon law first of all, doesn't quite cover nearly as much as Islamic law does, but canon law is fundamentally about the internal organization of the Catholic Church and its sort of immediate surroundings. Um, it's about managing a hierarchy. It's about um, it's about church building more than state building. And that's even the case in the me medieval era, where there was this clear, uh, maybe at least clear in theory, distinction between civil law and ecclesial law. So there is a kind of inherent dualism, I would argue, in the Christian tradition, not just today, but going back many centuries. Well, it also just falls right out of the line in Matthew, render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's, yeah. unto God, those things that are God's. It, exactly. And even if you look at, you know, parts of the New Testament, when, when, um, where Paul says, you know, Christ, um, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. So even the attitude towards law, there isn't much public law in the New Testament. And the reason for that, I think, is actually, you know, I don't want to say it's it's 100% clear, but one of the main reasons is that 
Jesus was a dissident against a reigning state. So he had ne- he never had to contend with governance. Mm. So naturally, the New Testament is not going to talk a lot about that because that's not what the early Christians were dealing with at the founding moment of the religion. And this gets me to another key distinction with Islam is that, hey, let's be honest about it. I mean, Prophet Muhammad was not just a dissident. He was actually, and he wasn't just a prophet or a religious figure, but he was also a politician. And he was specifically, and this is in some ways even more important, he was a head of state. Mm. So naturally, if you're a believer, right, and if something is coming from God as revelation, then naturally the Quran is going to have to have something to say about law and governance if that's what the early Muslims are dealing with. Otherwise, how how would Prophet Muhammad be guided, right? And even, but putting that aside, even if we're just approaching it from a purely analytical or academic perspective as outsiders, we would also say that any book has to address the needs of the time. So if we all can agree that Prophet Muhammad and the early Muslims were dealing with these questions of state building, then the Quran naturally will have more to say about such issues. Yeah. And one of the problems, obviously, is that once you accept the principle of revelation, once you accept the fact that this is this book is not merely the product of its time, but the product of God's omniscience, well, then its edicts need to stand for all time. So they constrain the politics. If there are political edicts in there, they constrain the politics of this and any future time. And, you know, that that's a, certainly perhaps not the only possible reading, but it, it's a natural one. And it's the reading many people, you know, attempt to take in, in every revealed religion. And following kind of directly on that point, what's the significance of the Quran being the actual speech of God? Can you make that? Because obviously yeah. many, many Christians believe the measure of being a fundamentalist Christian is if you believe that the Bible is perfect in all its parts and the actual word of God, but that's not still not quite the same thing as the Quran being the actual speech of God. And I, many people, I think even most fundamentalist Christians who don't doubt that Salafists or truly traditional Muslims believe every word of their holy book, even our own fundamentalists don't understand that you can go one better and believe that the holy book has a itself as a kind of magical status. Yeah, so this was actually one of the fascinating aspects of writing this book. And there's there's nearly an entire chapter on the evolution of Christianity and its attitudes towards politics. So I really had to dive into Christian theology and talk to um, pastors and scholars and theologians and, and do my best to relate to a tradition that is in some ways foreign to me. Again, like growing up in the Northeast, you don't, mm. I didn't have a lot of um, friends who took the Bible that seriously. So, um, you know, th- this, and so it really, it really struck me in my research, what an important difference this was. So if you talk to far right evangelicals today, they will say that the Bible is the word of God. Muslims will also tell you that the Quran is the word of God, but they go one step further and they say that the Quran is God's actual speech. And this is not some side thing or some incidental part of the religion, 
but it's actually a creedal requirement of the religion. So similar to how Christianity loses theological content or meaning if you take Christ out of it. So if you say that Christ is some ordinary guy, then you can find that's fine. Mm-hmm. You can be nominally Christian or culturally Christian, but there's not a lot of theological content there because Christ is pretty central to, to Christianity. So similarly, and um, the Quran being God's actual speech is central. And what that means is, is that it's not just inspired by God. It's not pre- preserved or protected by God only, but it's, it's every word and letter is directly from God. So it's his speech in the quite literal sense of being his speech. So in other words, there's no human, there's no human role or human authorship. So Muhammad didn't write a certain part of the Quran. Um, On the other hand, even evangelicals will acknowledge because as a factual matter, it's true that various parts of the Bible have been written by different authors, including people like Paul, who, who I mentioned earlier. Um, but evangelicals would, would say that it's still, in a sense, the word of God, and it's protected by God, and it's, in that sense, free from falsehood. But they would never they would never pretend that the Bible or the New Testament, let's say more specifically, is directly from God in the way that Muslims would say the same about the Quran. If I'm not mistaken, the only part of the Bible that God can be said to have written are the the two variant Ten Commandments. He etched those into stone, apparently, but those have a different status than everything else in the, in the book. Exactly. And in the New Testament, there are, you know, there are obviously places where Jesus is quoted. Yeah. And that, you know, that, so in that sense, those parts of the New Testament, which, which aren't a huge part of it, are, are um, divine speech in a sense, but most of the New Testament is not directly Jesus's words or God's words or whatever exactly, yeah. So this leads to, for among other reasons, to the problem that there hasn't been the same kind of textual analysis of the Quran academically that you have had of the Bible for now probably at least 200 years. Subjecting the Quran to the normal, critical, treatment that one one sees in the ivory tower has really been either forbidden or anathematized traditionally. And I, I remember my foundation in part sponsored a, a, a conference in Germany that was, you know, for the first time in, in anyone's memory, subjecting the Quran to very ordinary kinds of hermeneutics and linguistic analysis that the Bible has been subjected to for two centuries. And this was actually obviously a risky thing to do. I mean, most of the scholars publishing this work were working under pseudonyms, and it's just a completely paranoid exercise in very ordinary academic behavior. Can you say anything about that, about what what the, what hasn't been done to the Quran that could or, or should have happened? So I think that what was done with the Bible can't really be done with the Quran in the sense that there, this is not just an issue of evangelicals today, but you know, as I as I say in the book, I mean, there's there has never been a major sector denomination within Christianity that has argued that the New Testament is God's actual speech, right? So there there has always been a readiness to have more more of a critical engagement with the integrity of the text because most people can agree, even Christians 
that most of the Bible was written by men. Hmm. Um, now you just will not. So if you want to bring, if you want to bring Muslims on board and get, um, you can't. So this is also, we have to be pragmatic. Um, if, if someone goes to a group of even fairly broad minded Muslims who are open to progressive interpretations and you tell this group, well, Hey, you know, there has to be a critical engagement with the text that even starts to dismantle some of the things that are dear to the vast majority, if not all believing Muslims, um, then, you know, it's a non-starter. And I, I just don't know. So even if even if you believe that or other people believe that, um, how productive is that? There was a time, I should point out, that the Catholic Church attempted to quash this. I mean, there was a movement under the Catholic Church called modernism, where scholars were encouraged to look closely at the Bible using all the modern tools and put it on as firm a scholarly footing as they could. And they quickly found that this had the effect of eroding rather than than bolstering their faith because they were finding errors or inconsistencies or just learning more about the process of inclusion or or rejection of various texts, you know, it revealed that whole generations of Christians had lived with certain books being canonical, which are no longer thought to be canonical, and and vice versa. So it was just this carnival of of errors and you know merely you know all too human efforts to put together a tradition that they exposed, and so the the Catholic Church tried to stop it at a certain point. But I don't know if you remember that story that came as a, now again, something like 10, 15 years ago, where this scholar who I believe still goes by, by the pseudonym, I think it's Christopher Luxembourg. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. He, right. Found, he found that there was a passage in the Quran relating to the, the virgins that martyrs and other mm. lucky, lucky people are supposedly going to get in paradise, that the word for virgin excuse my non-existent Arabic here, but I think it's, it's hur or huri, actually meant at the time, based on textual analysis, white raisins, which were supposedly a delicacy. So rather than getting, there were a lot of jokes, you know, among which I, I told at the time, rather than getting 72 virgins, you get a, a fistful of raisins when you get to paradise. But that's, again, this, this is a, a scholar of Middle Eastern languages forced to live under a pseudonym and publish obscurely or not publish at all for analyzing the text. But yeah, you make the obvious yeah. point that the, the what one finds when one analyzes text in, in these ways is that because these books are almost certainly the product of merely human speech, you find evidence of that fact. And you find that parts of the Quran are actually swiped from pre-existing literature and, and all the rest. And that's, there is something in principle seditious and destabilizing about that. But why is it that you, you close the door to the possibility of that project ever working the same magic it worked on Christianity? Well, so I should say that, I mean, most Muslims aren't literalists in how they engage with the text. So I don't really see that as the I don't think the primary problem within Islam and among Muslims is that the vast majority of Muslims pick up the Quran and subscribe to a very literalist reading. So one way of putting it is that 
um, Muslims take the Quran as God's literal speech, but they don't necessarily interpret that speech literally, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And actually, so I was I was brushing up on my uh, my copy of, of your book with Majid, um, Islam and the Future of Tolerance. And um, and I was reminded that there are there were parts where I was like, huh. Um, imagine and I, you know, we, we have friendly disagreements, but we definitely do dis disagree on a number of issues. But I, as I was kind of going back, I was like, huh, I like how Majid is putting it here. So he has, he has a section where he talks about the method of interpreting the text and the importance of Muslims acknowledging that there's no one true reading of the text. And I think that's important mm. that none of us as, as fallible human beings have access to God's will. We don't know what God really wanted um, when he, you know, um, in certain verses of the Quran, right? So we can try our best to divine his intent or will. And there's actually a whole... Um, classical and academic liter literature on how to do that kind of interpretation, which is very rich and diverse and complex, but there's no way to know for sure. So I think there is already quite a bit of room to operate. And just to give one example that comes up a lot for understandable reasons, the Hadood punishments. So the religiously derived criminal punishments, and I should um, <laughs> I should offer the disclaimer that this is only a small part of Islamic law, and mm -hmm. we, we should be careful not to say that, hey, Sharia is just about cutting people's hands off. But they are there, right? You know, and let's not pretend that they aren't. Um, so there there are progressive interpretations, and I think Majid would probably subscribe to these, um, that, and we have to be honest, too, in in and say that this is a minority interpretation. So what, I, what I'm about to tell you now, I, the, the majority of scholars would not agree with me, but you know, th that the Quran, the Quran was revealed in a particular time and place in seventh century Arabia. So there were different norms and values then. So something like cutting off the hands of thieves did not offend the sensibilities of, of people at that time. And so, the idea there, so what was God's intent? Some scholars will say that God's intent or the objective of those verses is to have a deterrent effect. So the goal is to stop people from stealing. And that was an effective way of doing that back then. But today we live in a different era. And if we want to achieve a similar deterrent effect, there's other ways to do that besides chopping people's hands off. Right. I would argue there's probably no better way. I mean, it still would have it would have a marvelous deterrent effect still. And if God's goal is to deter theft, well, then, you know, why not keep chopping? You can see how what's what's unstable about that kind of pirouette and why it can easily fall back to the more straightforward and seemingly honest reading of the text, which is if it was good enough for God in the seventh century, it's good enough for God today, and he would, and, and and God in His wisdom would have put it differently if He meant it differently. What you're basically saying, and again, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, I love Majid, and I certainly hope the project of of reconstruing everything offensive in the tradition succeeds. But the reason why there, this is an asymmetric battlefield is that 
the straightforward, literal, and good for all time interpretation is always available to the person who wants to pick up the book and say, well, listen, you know, what I'm hearing from Majid and Shadi and all these other overeducated Muslims is that they know better than what God literally said. They, they, know, they know what God meant more than God did. No, okay, but I don't think that I do. So, so I'll say this. Um, I don't know if I'm right. Um, and that's why I don't. So, you know, sometimes people basically ask me for fatwas. I'm not a theologian. I'm not in any position to tell people what God may have or may not have meant with certain verses. This is just my this is just me speaking as a citizen, as a person, right, mm-hmm. as an individual. And I'm willing to entertain the possibility that I'm wrong and God does, in fact, want people in this world to cut off the hands of thieves. I don't I I don't like that idea. It makes me uncomfortable. And I also have I also not to get into them, have somewhat complex views on the nature of justice and something that you and Majid actually get into in, in your book as well, which is this question of the created versus the uncreated Quran. I don't want to get into all of that, but I'm someone who would like to think that God that God God is not going to commit injustice. God is incapable of being unjust because he is supposed to be the most just. So I consider certain things like, for example, like um, husbands, um, I don't know, marital rape, to give one example, Mm. or husbands beating up their wives over a disagreement. Um, I'm not I'm not comfortable believing in a God that is okay with domestic abuse, because that would undermine one of God's qualities, which is being the bearer of justice. Obviously, I, I I can see the ethical wisdom in in wanting to parse it that way, but again, it, it's it's open to the eternal quibble, which is you're talking about an, an omniscient author here. If he wanted to say it more clearly, he could have, right? And he's perfectly clear on on apostasy being a bad thing. Now he doesn't spell out the penalty for it in the Quran, as you know. We need the hadith for that, but yeah. He's absolutely clear that this is not good and that you should you should fear and revile and and in no ways befriend atheists and apostates and blasphemers and anyone who would doubt the the perfect veracity of this book. And that's a a problem. It's a social problem. It's a it's a civilizational problem. It's a problem we have to figure out how to overcome and so, you know, interfaith dialogue and finding some way to moderate that kind of sectarianism, you know, that's all progress in in the 21st century sense. But it's just very easy to see how that will keep falling back to the more straightforward interpretation, which is, no, no, it's, it's clear here on virtually every page that God hates infidels, right? And he's prepared a hell for them to go to. It's the whole point. The whole point of this universe is to figure out how to get infidels into hell, right? If God had wanted to guide them, he would have, right? And so he's, in any sane ethical view, this is a totally perverse psychological experiment. You know, you, 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 you put, imagine putting stupid people into 
giving them a puzzle they can't solve, right? Making it just too hard for them to solve, giving them no help at all. In fact, giving them further reasons to be confused about the right solution and then punishing them with an eternity in fire for failing to solve the puzzle you made that was too hard for them. That's essentially the universe we live in if you're a Muslim or, you know, arguably if you're a Christian as well. And so that's from a, the point of view of a non-believer, the whole thing is absurd, but more consequentially and more relevantly to this discussion, it seems that the fundamentalist, for lack of a better word, always has the advantage of saying, listen, just read the book and honestly grapple with what it says here and absorb the fact that God had infinite freedom to put it any way he wanted. If he wanted to tell you the universe was billions of years old, he could have told you that. If he wanted to tell you about the importance of learning mathematics, he could have told you that. But no, he's told you to treat women like property, right? Or continue the practice of slavery under these, you know, more refined conditions or or whatever it is. That's a problem. That's why the Islamic State really is the crystalline version of the retort to any kind of modernizing effort. It's, sorry guys, we're going we're gonna to show you what the project actually looks like and just tell us where we're mistaken. But, but if, the fundam- if the fundamentalist or liter- literalist reading of scripture was the default setting, then the majority of Muslims today would be fundamentalists and that they aren't. I think that's a false conclusion. It's understandable. But the truth is, is that most Muslims happily are human beings first. Insofar as they may believe in paradise, they're not sure of it, say. They're not committed to just seeing this world as a loathsome moment of temptation on the way to a sublime eternity. They want a nice life in this world for understandable reasons. And so their commitment, either they're just not especially educated about what Islam is. And, but this, this is not just Muslims we're talking about. We're talking about religious people in general. This is true of Christians and Buddhists and Hindus and everyone else who's enthralled to some otherworldly belief system. To the degree that they find life in this world captivating, beautiful, worth maintaining, worth improving, they are captivated and they have, an, they have another commitment. And when they read God saying something that seems inimical to maximizing human flourishing, whether it's political or economic or intellectual or artistic or any other way, they decide to disregard God's crazy edict there because. It is incompatible with what they want out of life. And that's a good thing. And most, even Muslims, for the most part, have been captured by that modern, secular, humanist project. And that's the lever we have to keep pulling on some level. Well, I mean, in in a sense, I agree with you that Islam, well, maybe, so certainly Muslims are pragmatic because they have to be, but I think I would argue that Islam is also pragmatic and flexible, that it can incorporate ideas from outside of scripture and then sort of retroactively Islamize them. And I know that you you argue, you know, um, if I recall in, in, in parts of the, the moral landscape, um, or maybe it was at the end of faith, one of them, <laughs> that um, that the... And it's similar to the argument that you're making now that to the extent that 
Muslims are pragmatic, it's because of things that are foreign to their faith, and it's because of the sort of indelible pull of secularization that they cannot avoid because they live in the real world. But I don't know why we have to see those things as outside of Islam or not falling within the realm of religion. Um, and that's and that's why I think Islam has been quite flexible and resonant to this very day, despite a lot of challenges to it, is that it is able to bring those other things in. So someone can be fully modern and fully Muslim and not have to choose, where I think if you look at Christianity at a crucial moment in the 19th century in particular, um, where people were essentially making a choice between being Christian and being modern because the church was so avowedly against popular modern concepts like universal suffrage or democracy or socialism, where Islam has actually been quite nimble in this regard in being somewhat comfortable. So that's why you have phrases that people use quite often like Islamic democracy, Islamic socialism, Islamic finance. Um, and I think that's that's key to understanding why Islam has been resistant to this kind of more aggressive secularization that would privatize Islam or to kind of put it in a box. Muslims have realized, I think, by and large, that they don't have to put Islam in a box to live in the modern world. Let's get to this because this is drawing to the, the heart of your claim, which most people find provocative, which differentiates what you're doing or saying from what I certainly hear Majid saying. And this is that for all practical purposes, Islamism is here to stay, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I have a quote here from you where you say, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for Islam to play an outsized role in public life. And you also say, quote, I see very little reason to think that secularism is going to win out in a war of ideas. This is a, a kind of skepticism about secularism, and that's coupled to something that you do seem to view as a kind of intrinsic good, which is democracy or, or, or the respect for democracy or the, or the outcome of a democratic process. So that as long as the people tell you what they want and their wants are made effective, at the level of government through the democratic process, it's not for us to say what they should want or to de deny them what they want. And you seem to think that there's not really a deep argument for secularism, but there is a deep argument for democracy. I want to talk about that a little bit because I, I see that the other way around. I don't see democracy to be an intrinsic good. If, if the people are imbeciles or religious maniacs, well, then you could argue they're not ready for democracy. Yeah. Or democracy is suicidal. It could be suicidal. When I say that religion shouldn't play a role in public policy or government, what I mean is that, that dogmatism shouldn't play a role and unreason shouldn't play a role and the denial of science shouldn't play a role and, and superstition or a belief in magic shouldn't play a role. And the reason why secularism let's just take a core principle of secularism, which is, which is at odds with, with much of what Muslims believe and certainly much of what Islamists believe, just the, a commitment to free speech and a commitment to freedom of thought, which is really at the core 
this is an intrinsic good for, for this reason. It is the only real error-correcting mechanism we've got intellectually and ethically moving forward. The moment you say that unpopular opinions or new opinions or startling opinions are not only unpopular, startling, new, and worthy of criticism, perhaps, but illegal, we're going to punish you for having them, right? We will kill you for your apostasy. We will kill you for the cartoon we didn't like or the novel we didn't like or the play you shouldn't have staged. The moment you make that move, you put a brick wall at the horizon of human conversation. And there's really no telling how bad that could be in the limit. And the only way we can move forward morally and scientifically and culturally, really, is to have conversation be open. And that is fundamental in a way that democracy merely isn't. Yeah. So let's see a couple things there. Um, so I guess one thing that's worth mentioning that so my own progressive views on certain issues. So I support gay marriage. I support decriminalization of marijuana, things that are associated with um, classical liberalism, let's say, and the left as well in the U.S. Um, I, I guess I, I've sort of come to the conclusion that my arguments about those things would be compelling to me and people like me. I'm under no illusion that they'll be compelling to a majority of Egyptians or Pakistanis or whatever. So I actually am willing to acknowledge that that my views are not going to win out when it comes to Islam. Um, and I have to be realistic about that. And um, so that's one thing I would say. Let me just get you to refine that or unpack that a little bit, because half the time I hear you saying just that, you're essentially just being realistic. You're say, basically saying, <laughs> given the state of discourse and the, and the ideological commitments of much of the Muslim world, we are not going to win this war of ideas in any sort of time frame that is practical to bank on or that any of us alive today will find satisfying, right? So we have to, on, on some basic level, be realists and accept that Islam and, and even Islamism is just the fact on the ground. But you seem to, in many points, go further than that and say... This isn't even a problem. This is we have to be agnostic about whether or not this is even bad. In fact, at one point you argue that Islamic exceptionalism isn't good or bad. It's just it just has to be understood and respected. And and so then you move. You basically say that there are no there's no, nothing normative here that we need to hold on to because this is just to each his own. This is at some level a matter of taste. If they want to live as Islamists, we not only have to accept it as a practical reality, we should accept it. This is a, a matter of just putting all human norms, or at least these human norms, on the same footing, and really there'd be no place to stand by which we could judge them to be you know, more or less right. Okay, so, so this kind of gets into, I don't know how much you'll want to get into this, but the question of moral truth, which, you you know, you, you've talked about a lot, mm. you know, especially in the moral landscape. And um, so I think some of it has to do with different starting assumptions. And that's why I think it's actually very difficult to to come to um, shared conclusions on this particular issue. 
Um, so I, I believe that me being a small L liberal is a product of historically contingent factors. So I was born in the U.S. I had a specific set of um, circumstances and experiences which shaped me as a person. And over time, I became who I currently am. So that's very specific to me. And if someone else had a different set of experiences in a different country with a different set of social norms, I don't necessarily see why they would come to my same conclusion. So, and this is actually something that... But you could say the same thing about physics or mathematics or biology. You could say, listen, the only reason why I understand that evolution is a biological fact of this world is because I was educated a certain way. You know, I went to this high school and this college and I had these this spelled out for me, but why would I expect you know, a Bushman of the Kalahari to understand evolution? Well, that, that's, that's true. There's, descriptively, as a contingent fact of your upbringing, that's how you learned it and that's why he didn't. But you would still take a position that evolution is a fact and it's better <laughs> to know it rather than be ignorant of it. So here, here's the thing. So I, I mean, as an analyst, and this is something that people don't like, some some people don't like about me and my research is that I think it's important to suspend our personal biases, proclivities, or inclinations when we're trying to understand something that's foreign to us. So in that sense, I take sort of a traditional ethnographic or anthropological approach. So my job spending spending time with a certain Islamist organization hmm. is not to condemn necessarily, but to understand and to be as and to convey to the American reader as much as I possibly can what is animating their world and to let their reader make strong value judgments about whether something is good, bad, or evil, or horrendous, or whatever it might be. And um, I think that's the right way to approach it academically and analytically. Um, so that's one thing I would say, but I, one thing I, I should clarify is I don't necessarily think Islamism is a fait accompli. It's more that I think Islam playing an important role in politics is a fait accompli. And those two are, they sometimes overlap, but they're not always the same thing. And I, you know, as you might recall in the book, I give some examples of ostensibly secular parties that hate Islamists or are non-Islamists. Mm that still believe that Islam should play an important role in public life and politics. So that's the part of it that I think is, is likely to persist. So the example that's probably most obvious and I guess most striking in some ways is Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, the military strongman in Egypt, who's as anti-Islamist as you can possibly get. And he's killed obviously a lot of Islamists in things like the Rabah massacre, which we mentioned earlier. Sisi is not a secularist, though. Sisi has been very clear about his views on religion. He wants religion to play a role in public life. He just disagrees with the Muslim Brotherhood on what exactly that looks like. Um, so that's one thing. So I, I personally only have, maybe only isn't the right word because maybe two is a lot. I have two non-negotiables when it comes to my moral commitments. And I mean, we'd have to go into like, I guess my life story to figure out how I came to these two particular things. Even I'm not 100% sure. One of them is 
um, democracy, but more in its in its procedural or minimalistic sense. Obviously, there have to be some free speech protections and there have to be some constitutional protections for democracy to be real. So if a secular party is not going to have the right to oppose an Islamist party, then it's not democracy because you're rigging the game so that only one group of parties or maybe even only one party can win, which is why Iran cannot be called a democracy because there are supreme bodies that can decide who has standing to run an election. So that doesn't, that doesn't, you know, that's not going to fly. People have to be able to fight for liberalism. They have to be able to express disagreements with Islamism Hmm. as part of the free marketplace of ideas. If you quash that, then, you know, then that's a different kind of thing. What about when the Islamists win, right, through a democratic process? If if you're going to respect the rights of Islamists to practice their Islamism, you aren't you by definition respecting their right to subjugate certain people, women, gays, apostates, etc.? So then the question is, where is the red line? And this isn't just something that affects Muslim majority countries. We in America also have red lines. So how far can a supermajority go? And theoretically, if a supermajority is large enough in the U.S., they can undo Bill of Rights protection. So if you have two-thirds of both houses of Congress and 75% of the states, you can change the constitution. So really no country is 100% immune to the tyranny of very large majorities, right? So, so I think in some ways it depends quite a bit on norms, um, but constitutions do matter because it is still pretty difficult. You have to go through a lot of effort to overturn constitutional protections, which is why, you know, I try to lay out in the final chapter of the book some of the ways of of looking, I think, creatively or productively, let's say, at constitution drafting in a way that can satisfy both Islamists and their opponents. And so they can find a way to live together because they're not going to kill each other into oblivion. They're both going to exist. So the question then is how do they learn to hate? Because I'm not one of these people who who thinks that Islamists and non-Islamists are going to come to some kind of agreement about the good life. And I think that they are going to disagree on very profound issues for legitimate reasons. And it would be absurd or, or I think quite naive of us to think that there is a common ground that all of us are going to find. And that's even, I think, absurd in the U.S. context. I don't think there is a common ground. So then the challenge becomes, how do you get people who disagree on the good life, on the fundamentals, to agree to hate each other peacefully, peaceful mm. hatred, let's say, or something like that, right? Um And uh, that, to me, requires at least some basic constitutional protections. So let's look at the constitution that Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood oversaw in 2012 in Egypt. It was a flawed constitution, but I think in some ways the bigger problem was how it was done, that it was in some ways um, pushed, imposed on liberals, and liberals walked out from various 
various sessions of the drafting process. And I think that's actually the bigger problem is that you don't, not everyone has a stake in the final product. So that then they have an incentive to play spoiler and bring the whole thing down because they say, hey, we weren't even listened to properly in the constitution drafting process. But that constitution did still have free speech protections, maybe not as much as people would like. Um, it's not as if this constitution banned alcohol consumption or um, banned women from the right to vote or or legalized wife beating. So even if we, I, I would never wanna argue to liberals in the US or Europe to, to say to them, you have to like groups like the Brotherhood. In some ways, we should not like aspects of the Muslim Brotherhood's worldview if we claim to be liberals or if we claim to believe in free expression, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I think it's also useful to not demonize all Islamists and say that, hey, they came up with a bunch of constitutions where they were where they wanted to cut people's hands off and legalize white wife beefing white wife beating because we can see in Morsi's constitution if you want to call it that that there weren't those things right. so i think there's there's a kind of there has to be a, a degree of fairness in actually looking at what islamists do when they're in power why do you not follow majid's line here which there's i would agree little evidence of it being borne out yet but in principle it makes sense that it could be to me, and this is really the conclusion he reaches in our book together, that there's something about the intrinsic pluralism of at least Sunni Islam, which, as you know, is 85% of the Muslim world, which gives you secularism really as your only stopgap against hatreds that become violent. Given that there's no place to stand within Sunni Islam to say that we have the one right version, there's going to be pluralism, there's going to be theological difference. And in this context, even Islamists, even you know, very committed Salafists, could be forced to acknowledge that the only way for them to live the way they want and not be victimized by some other majority is to enshrine a, a secular ethic. I mean, just to, for us to agree to disagree peacefully and practice our variant religion separately and not attempt to force our views on others. Why, why don't you see the same hope for, for secularism there? And as you know, then once that's established, Majid thinks that liberal values will be ascendant because liberalism, small l, has a better argument. But why don't you make that same jump from pluralism to secularism? So I have a darker view of human nature. So this goes to some of my priors. I don't believe that liberalism is natural. So I, I'm, I'm sort of... <laughs> Before we get to liberalism, just take the sheer self-preservation in the, the state of nature of pluralism leading to secularism. Why, why don't you follow Majid there? And, and feel free to tell me any other way you, you disagree with, with Majid's take on this. Okay, so um, so a couple of things. So, well, first of all, we we know historically that classical liberalism has been a fairly recent phenomenon, and even then, we have to make qualifications because we talk about someone like James Madison as one of the great liberal theorists. But if Madison was alive today, 
he would be considered pretty damn illiberal in the sense that he owned slaves and he actually um, didn't even free them upon his death. So, um, but we judge, but we judge Madison according to his own time and place. The same thing with Locke, John Locke, in in terms of his very problematic views on atheists Mm. and, and, and Catholics, right? So, but generally speaking, human history is, um, is, is actually kind of disturbing in the sense of how regular and how normalized very bad things have been. And it's only recently that we've seen an ideology, if you will, or a way of looking at the world, post-enlightenment liberalism, that is offering a different path on some of these issues. But there must be a reason that for the broader sweep of history, liberalism has not been the default setting for humankind. And I, I, I would, that's why for me, I sort of get Trump, I sort of get the rise of the far right in Europe because they're speaking to something which is very natural, that we want something more than classical liberalism. We wanna believe in something that can at times be destructive or ugly. And um, so that that's part of it. So I, I just have a dark, so I think about, for example, you know, I, I talk, um, I guess, fairly early in the book about, uh, you know, touching on the fact that um, the massacre in Egypt and the fact that I had relatives, um, secular elites who are really rational people in some ways, um, they're doctors, engineers, and they, they would sort of consider themselves maybe not secular in the total Western sense, but secular in the Egyptian context. And I saw how quickly their veneer of rationality or rationalism that went by the wayside when there was an existential conflict. And it wasn't, in this case, Islamists killing non-Islamists. It was, quote unquote, secular elites supporting the mass killing of Islamists, in this case, members of the Muslim Brotherhood. So things like that have really, I have to be honest, have really had an effect on me and how I view the human propensity to violence. And I know you've thought about this and written a lot about this in, in your books too. But so that's one thing I would say. Um, I guess the other thing is um, be careful what you wish for. So you talked about how Majid has talked, um, you know, has talked about the fragmentation of religious authority and the fact that there isn't a clergy. That sounds good. And it can be good in some ways, but it's also a case of be careful what you wish for, because every you could have some random dude on the street who's like, hey, I'm I don't have any I don't have much religious training, but I'm going to pick up the Quran and I'm going to interpret it in my own way. And a lot of Salafi preachers don't actually have great religious training. Yeah. But but they think that they now have the authority to make grand pronouncements and they can ignore what's very a very rich tradition of Islamic scholarship. So that I think is actually part of the problem is that with mass educational attainment, with mass literacy, mass those two things have actually gone hand in hand with the rise of Islamism. So when people say, well, the solution is more literacy and more education, um, Look, the people who support is the leaders and kind of core ranks of at least the mainstream Islamist movements are very much 
not of the poorest, yeah. least educated classes. A lot of them, especially the leadership, are like kind of like hardcore rationalists in a way when it comes to s- the prototype is the is an engineer. You yeah, were, engineers, we're not talking doctors, about a but, he, yeah. but even sci- you know scientists and yeah. you know um, uh, lawyers, people who are part of those professional classes. So, um, and they're not they don't have they're not very clerical. So if you look at the Muslim Brotherhood leadership in Egypt, they don't have a lot of senior clerics. In fact, they have very few, but they think that they can kind of go around and talking and talk about religion. Even the founder of the Brotherhood was a school teacher, Mm. right? Hassan al-Banna in 1928. So I, I, I can see how the decentralization of religious knowledge could be good if we, if people, you know, come to their senses and, but I, how how do you adjudicate between people who disagree with each other about certain verses or interpretations without a clergy, without someone who can say you're right and wrong? So it's a good thing because in a way it encourages pluralism, but it's a problematic thing because there's no way to resolve these foundational divides. That's exactly Majid's point. And again, it, it could just be you know, purely aspirational as opposed to something that could be realized of necessity. But his point is, you get the pluralism because everyone can be his own authority. So as you say, someone like Anwar al-Awlaki can just get on YouTube and decide to preach jihad, and he is as authoritative as he wants to be. But because that's the the reality, there is no referee, people of very different commitments could or should be able to see that the only safe context for this is secularism. The only way you're not going to lose when the stronger guy shows up with his version of the religion is if everyone has agreed at the outset that you just have to maintain your pluralism in a, in a secular context and keep your, your religious demands out of public policy. So I think I know where the issue is then, yes. Yeah. So I think that um, the problem there is that Islamists can't can't generally be fully Islamist in a fully secular society or system. So they would say that this that would be an infringement on their rights and freedoms to determine what to them is the good life. Mm. So in that sense, lib- we we tend to think as Americans that classic the classical liberal tradition is just a neutral way of things. It doesn't have ideological content, but actually um, liberalism is only neutral to those who are already liberal. If you're not liberal, you will not think that it's neutral, right? Mm, right. And that's precisely how, how, how most Islamists view liberalism as something that is foreign to their worldview and what they consider to be human nature and their default setting. So what, you know, so I guess I would just pose the question, if an Islamist said that to you, how would you respond? Yeah, so I, I, I see that that's always been my concern with Islamism or any any kind of commitment to theocracy. It is, by definition, bound to overflow its banks. Even in a pragmatic sense, it, you could get people to agree that now, given that they're a minority or don't have as much power as they want, they need to be well-behaved and just practice their theocracy within a, you know, a walled garden just for themselves. The reality is, is that once they have enough power to influence the rest of society, they will want to because they have deeply held beliefs about paradise and the end of the world and 
the consequences of, of sin on this earth. And if I'm happily burning a Quran in my backyard, well, then they don't want to just stay on their side of the fence practicing their theocracy. They want to come on my side and kill me for my unbelief. I don't see how that likely goes away. I mean, that's why you have to, rather than just respect people's rights to be religiously confused or doctrinaire or dogmatic, (laughs) I think you have to intrusively undermine their beliefs and undermine the beliefs of their children. And you have to have an educational system that says, sorry, kids, but your parents don't own you and we have you for the better part of the day. And so we're going to tell you that what mom and dad told you about evolution or anything else is almost certainly bullshit. And here's why. And you get the next generation to doubt the crazy ideas of its ancestors. And, and that's, that's what progress looks like on every level, whether it's scientific or religious. That is a war of ideas. No one's ever accused me of being an optimist. So I, I don't think this is an easy war of ideas to win by any means. And, and I certainly agree with you that the ways in which Islam is exceptional pose a higher barrier to success here in most respects, not every respect. I mean, there, there are little you know, wrinkles here which are interesting, which make Islam easier than, than Christianity in certain contexts. But in others, I, I think it, it's a harder case, and that, that certainly worries me. Well, two things on that. So I think there would still, there are still going to be red lines of what you can do in any society. So there is no constitution in the world where you can kill people because you disagree with them. Um, I guess you can do it extra legally, but I'm sort of assuming that in any country where Islamists have some power on the regional or national level, they wouldn't be able. And and to, and I would argue that at least when it comes to what I call the mainstream Islamist movements, they are not saying that they want to kill apostates. They are against apostasy and they want to put limits on, say, burn. Quran, so there could be, let's say, they'd probably want to have a fine for that, I'm guessing. But you could have a constitution that had blasphemy laws, which said that you'll you'll be imprisoned for the rest of your life if you burn the Quran or whatever it is, and or or even killed. I mean, you know, we we've got people who who want to make. I mean, Donald Trump just tweeted yesterday that you should be in prison for a year or lose your citizenship for burning the flag. Right? People are confused on this point, even in a secular context. Right. So. So, well, if, if let's say that the, um, I guess they would have to change the constitution constitution for this. I, but let's say that there was a large enough supermajority in the U.S. and they wanted to actually ban flag burning. I would have to respect that outcome, even though it's contrary to my ideals. But I think the I think beyond that, though. What, so when you're saying that kind of the new generation or trying to undermine some of these problematic beliefs. What worries me there is that we're essentially, I, I don't I don't think that we should be waging war on ideas that are held by a lot of people because that's a recipe for endless conflict. So even if we think from a normative standpoint that this from, from the standpoint of objective truth is what what moral truth would require, I think it would just, and I think we've actually seen signs of this already, that having that conflict over religion and trying to force people to be something that they're not is going to lead to more more violent conflict. And in that sense, I don't see Islam as much as the problem. 
but I see the inability to come to terms with Islam's role in public life for people in the Middle East and beyond to agree on what that role should be. It's that conflict over religion which drives violence less than religion itself. But as you know, it is a majority opinion in most Muslim-majority countries that apostates should be killed or that blasphemy is a killing offense. I mean, the, the, the polling results on these kinds of specific questions are terrible. And it's, or the, the Danish cartoon controversy, right? It's just what you seem to be saying, or what in fact you are saying, is that we shouldn't go up against bad ideas if a majority holds them. We should sort of pick around the margins no, no, but... of, of, of ideas that are bad, that are not so well subscribed. So first of all, there hasn't been a democratically elected gover- Islamist government that has gone around killing apostates. What you do have in Pakistan, which I think is problematic and dangerous, is certain things around anti-blasphemy laws. So I take your yeah. point on that. But that's something that Pakistan would have to resolve. If we want that to improve, I think it's Pakistanis themselves who have to adjudicate that within the confines of the democratic process. I mean, there's no there's no um, magic bullet or smoking gun where some unelected power can come in and say, Pakistanis, you're wrong. You have to get rid of these anti-blasphemy laws. There, there's just no way to do that. Again, the, the, the laws, and this is a point I think Orwell made somewhere, the laws are only as good as the people's commitment to them. So that no one's going to enforce laws that are sufficiently unpopular. And even if you have the right laws in place, if majority opinion is that blasphemers should be killed, well, then it's not going to be safe to be a blasphemer. And as you know, in Pakistan, I think it was the, the governor who came out on record saying we should get rid of our blasphemy laws, was himself killed by, his, I think, his own bodyguard, right, for blaspheming on that point. So it wasn't even safe to be a member of the government trying to change blasphemy laws, given the level of public sentiment in Pakistan around blasphemy. So at some point, you have to acknowledge that there's a war of ideas to be won, at least on specific points, like the primacy of free speech. It seems to me that the laws almost don't matter, right? No, no blasphemer will be safe, even if you have the right constitution, if the sentiments of the mob are reliably in the direction of blasphemy being a killing offense. So, uh, so I'm less familiar with Pakistan's laws, but I, I don't believe, so the governor who was killed was killed by someone who was then um, charged with a crime. Um, so what, what that person did was illegal. So you can't, I don't know what the exact punishment is for blasphemy cases that are actually tried and how that works legally, mm. but, I, but I don't believe it's a death penalty. Some people take the law and take matters into their own hands and will kill people because they say this person blasphemed, right? Um, but I don't know if there are cases in Pakistan's judicial system where I, I, don't, I don't recall any cases where people were killed. I think it is. I, I could be wrong about this. I, I certainly should know yeah. this, but I think, there, I think it is still a capital offense. I think there are people in prison awaiting execution for blasphemy. There's some legal process, but I think there's a famous case, I think this is Pakistan, of a woman who converted to Christianity who is in prison for blasphemy. 
Yeah, so apostasy maybe, and maybe certain kinds of blasphemy are, but I don't believe that someone has actually been executed by the Pakistani government from a legal standpoint. Um, right. So there may be also a gap between some of the laws that are actually on the books and what happens. But I take your point, and I think that one way of addressing that, um, f- from our standpoint, as, as as let's say you know Americans is let's say an Islamist party comes to power through democratic elections. That doesn't mean we give up our values and say that party can do whatever they want because they've been democratically elected. If they were um, debating um, an act in parliament that would introduce restrictions on speech um, that, that 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 cross a line on whatever line on blasphemy, then I can imagine that that's something that we would do our best to counter. Um, Again, we can't force a parliament to not vote something as legislation, but it's not to say that America loses its moral voice on liberal values. I just don't think that we should force people. For example, I wouldn't be very comfortable. So for example, the Iraqi government recently passed a law banning alcohol at a very weird time. So, you know, the Mm -hmm. Mosul operation is going on and, hey, people are like, okay, let's get the parliament together and ban alcohol, you know. So that's definitely weird. But I don't think, even though that contravenes personal freedom and therefore is illiberal, I wouldn't be comfortable with the U.S. government, which would then say, hey, you guys are curtailing personal freedom. We are going to cut aid to you because of something your parliament passed through the democratic process. I think we would have to be very careful about that, certainly on some things which would be so egregious as to be uncontestably egregious, then perhaps, but again, we'd have to have a discussion about where we as Americans would consider something that was so beyond the pale that it would trigger a certain cut in aid. But we don't have a legal. So legally now, if there's a military coup against a democratically elected government, there's a legal trigger Mm. for cutting U.S. aid. There isn't anything comparable on, say, liberal values. There could be potentially, but then we would have to have that discussion as Americans. It seems to me that there are a couple of paradoxes or at least (laughs) <laughs> weird wrinkles yeah. here that emerge in if we accept your analysis more or less as given that Islamism is kind of no, on some level non-negotiable or that or the, the the centrality of Islam in political life for Muslims is non-negotiable at least for the any kind of time horizon that we should care about or could be motivated by and we have to accept it it's therefore sort of indigestible and and it's a curious and very likely flawed assumption to think that these people, these people who, as viewed from a non-Muslim majority, will share our values. That gets you a few weird things. I mean, one, for instance, is that it would seem to justify the very illiberal and some would say paranoid concerns of non-Muslims in Europe, for instance, in the face of the migrant phenomenon, right? So it's the assumption of liberal Europe that, oh, no, we can just absorb these people. They will assimilate happily into our wonderful culture, at least at some point. And this allows us to discharge our ethical obligation to help these just fantastically unlucky people who are streaming out of the 
the hell realm that is Syria at the moment. Well, if I took your analysis as given, I would be tempted to say, oh, no, on the contrary. These people who are headed your way now by the millions are people who you can't at all reasonably expect to share your Western liberal values. And you're importing into your culture another culture that is, in principle, indigestible. I've gotten precisely this criticism. And um, it's one that, I mean, I really hope that people, people have done this, but I don't want people to read my book and come out of it and be like, oh, well, here's that Muslim guy who wrote the book. And according to what he said, maybe we should actually do things which I would consider bigoted in terms of racial or, or religious tests for immigration. That said, I have to be consistent. I have to try my best to be as consistent as I can. And I think that people have the right to be illiberal. And that would include far right parties if they decide and they're able to pass it through parliament in France, Norway or whatever, then I have to be willing to live with that outcome. Just as if it happens in this country that somehow, even though presumably there'd be some kind of Supreme Court challenge, there was a kind of Muslim registry um, you know, I would do my best to fight against that within the confines of our democratic process. I would do whatever I can, um, whether it's through peaceful protest or voting or different representatives or donating to the ACLU, um, being a part of legal challenges. And that would be the fight that you would have to fight. Um, so uh, and I think also there's a distinction between a registry for American Muslims, which would be clearly unconstitutional, and restricting immigration. From what I understand, you can restrict immigration based on whatever criteria, because those people are not citizens. Mm. So you can choose what, you know, what kind of quotas. And we've had a history of various quotas from different countries and ethnicities and whatever it happens to be. So I'm uncomfortable with it, but a country could decide to accept less Muslims than other religions as they have already done in the past. Now, it would differ from country to country whether that would be considered constitutionally legitimate and there would presumably be legal challenges even if it's just immigrants. But that would have to play out through the legal process. But I do understand why people could listen to my analysis and say, hey, we kind of don't want those people. But what I would say is that where do you draw the line? Because I don't consider and I've said this elsewhere, um, I don't think Trump supporters, at least some of them, are committed to classical liberal values. The very fact that they believe in illiberal things like, I don't know, a registry for Muslim Americans or if Trump isn't willing to disavow um, the internment of Japanese Americans, that contravenes our Bill of Rights. And um, the example that I've given is if there is a Trump supporter in Norway or Poland or whatever who wants to then immigrate to the U.S. to be closer to the leader, the dear leader or whatever, should we let that person come in? if they don't share what I as an American consider to be non-negotiable rights, freedoms, and civil liberties. So it, it becomes a question of whose illiberalism do you accept? Presumably you accept the version that you 
have to, at least for the time being. And if, it, insofar as it's discretionary, it's it's totally rational to want to avoid more illiberalism. So if you know if it's a choice to exclude neo Nazis from immigration, well, it's, that seems a pretty straightforward choice. What about people? What about people who believe in a registry not for immigrants but for American citizens who happen to be Muslim? Perhaps you know my thoughts about profiling and and everything in this area. I mean, I, I think a a registry. I'm not a, a lawyer, much less a constitutional lawyer, so I, I can't tell you that I know it would be unconstitutional. But I can certainly see that it would be an alarming, inflammatory, very likely counterproductive thing to attempt to institute. But the concern that it's articulating is a valid one. I mean, so w- we know we're not worried about Amish jihadists or Anglican jihadists or Mormon jihadists or Scientologists, despite how weird they are. We're not worried about them blowing <laughs> themselves up in Times Square, right? So we're worried about Muslim jihadists. 100% of jihadists are Muslims. The first people who should admit that are Muslims. And Muslims, above all, should want to get this problem solved insofar as it admits of a solution. Therefore, Muslims should profile themselves. Profiling is a dirty word for using some statistically valid information to prioritize your use of attention. The only way not to profile is to pretend that you have no information about anything relevant to, in this case, terrorism or crime or anything else. So if you're going to pretend you know nothing about who is more or less likely to harm you in various circumstances, well, then you're delusional, right? Because you actually do have some information, but that's the only way not to profile. And the moment you think that there is some sign that one person or other has more or less an ability, motive to harm you, well, then you are profiling whether you want to call it that. And so every woman profiles men when they think about the prospect of getting raped. And right. every woman profiles young men versus old men, right? The 90-year-old the in a walker is less threatening than the 25-year-old in a hoodie. And there's good reasons for that. And that's not going to change. And we lie to ourselves and to our children and to the electorate when we pretend otherwise. And we have a culture of politically correct lies that have been mandated on this topic. Again, another reason why we have Trump and the alt-right and all of the, the, this, this illiberal swing into true political ugliness because the sane, sensible, ethical people have been taught to lie about these basic facts. So I would say that, just to come back to the registry point, no, I wouldn't favor a registry, but what I favor is a very honest conversation with Muslims, among Muslims, about why Islam is the only religion we have to have this conversation about at this moment in history. And the, the first line of defense against extremism in our society is an honest analysis by well-meaning, well-intentioned, non-extremist people about the facts and the consequences of certain doctrines and the, and the, the degree to which they are well-subscribed and a willingness to put pressure on bad ideas that are divisive and dangerous and reliably leading to oppression. So, well, yes, 100% of jihadists are Muslim almost by definition, right? But 100% of terrorists are not Muslim. I mean, we have white nationalist sure. terrorists, for example. So if we're talking about terrorism more broadly as a phenomenon, I think we actually have to be 
concerned about other groups and perhaps increasingly so. I mean, there's obviously a lot more attention now on um, white nationalist violence, which may get worse. So there's nothing I said there that that disregards that, except I would just point out that whenever people make that statement, they tend to lie about the the statistics of the risk. I mean, so so people start counting, for instance, after September 11th. They say, you know, 47 people have been killed by jihadists, and I guess this was before Orlando, but something like 47 have been killed by jihadists since September 11, 2001 in the United States, and, you know, 49 have been killed by white nationalists. So white nationalism is, is a greater terrorist threat. This is the kind of thing that, you know, someone like Dean Obadala will jump on CNN to say, right? This is what's so terrifying to ordinary ethical people who are paying attention to the problem about the left right now, because there's no penalty for this kind of obscurantism, and it is genuine obscurantism. If you're going to start counting after September 11th, and you're going to discount the fact that certain groups are attempting to acquire nuclear weapons for the purpose of terrorism, and these are not white Aryan lunatics in Idaho, but they are groups like al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, this is a very different kind of threat that we have to speak honestly about. So I'm a little bit torn on this, and let me let me try to unpack it and see what you think. So I... So I know statistically that terrorism committed by Muslims is, as you mentioned, quite, you know, statistically improbable and unlikely. And I think that from what I recall, um, a colleague had written an article, you know, on the Brookings website saying that, you know, 0.000043% of American Muslims have been implicated in any acts of terrorism or something along those lines. I might be missing a, a decimal point or whatever. So um, so in that sense, intellectually, I get the argument that a lot of people make on the left that, hey, there's a bigger chance that you're going to be walking by the street in some random neighborhood in D.C. and a piano will fall from the sixth floor window and it will bounce on the sidewalk then hit you on a particular angle and then you die or something like that, just to give a kind of, you know, mm. absurdist example. So I I get that, but I, I I'm uncomfortable with that because I don't think the reason terrorism, particularly terrorism from abroad is so scary isn't because it happens a lot. I mean, that's mm. not really the point. And I've I've been uncomfortable precisely for this reason with President Obama, because even if he says the right things occasionally, and I, I don't think he talks about terrorism the right way, but even when he does, there's almost a sense that he's offering us a, a concession that in his heart of hearts, he's like, hey, there's a bigger chance a piano will fall on you, chill people. And he's like almost, he's almost annoyed by the fact that he has to pander to fears about terrorism. But I get it. I mean, I'm, I get, you know, I am, I can say to you now that I am more concerned about terrorism for, for the U.S. writ large, um, for our national security, for us as a nation. I'm more concerned by terrorism committed by Muslims than white nationalist terrorism. And I guess when I say it, that seems obvious to me. I don't know if other people are going to find that to be a controversial statement. I don't know. It shouldn't be. but And you could easily imagine a change of facts that would 
change your assessment. So, for instance, if the Electoral College in a couple of weeks decides to vote against Trump, right, and decides to give us President Hillary Clinton, what would we expect to happen on the ground? Well, then I would really worry about white nationalist terrorism oh, of yeah, some sort, sure. or, you know, so, some like a civil war. I mean, at, at minimum, I think you would have some hundreds of thousands, maybe a million people for whom organizing their you know, moral worldview around their NRA membership will suddenly seem justified, and we would have a huge problem on our hands. That's a very simple change in our politics that would change my calculation totally. But given that that's not likely to happen, I'm not wasting a lot of time thinking about it. I, I can tell you why I think the, the raw statistics on terrorism are less than informative in terms of our, our marshalling our concerns. It's because two things. Well, one is that ideas spread, right? So that things can, insofar as people find certain ideas compelling, there can be follow-on consequences which are, whether or not they're foreseeable or not, they, they may not be linear with the, the actual you know, body count, right? So who's to say how much of Trump's, whatever Trump does to the world by virtue of being president, how much is that the result of Orlando and Paris and a few other things that just killed people by the dozens, right? You can throw Nice in there, right? Or how much of his, is you know, Brexit the result of a few, you know, infelicities associated with the, the migrant crisis. Or even more of a concern is how much will we overreact to the next terrorist incident that's of a scale of, of 9-11? 3,000 people died on 9-11. You know, that's like a, month, a month's worth of traffic accidents in this country. And yet we react very differently. But given that we are guaranteed to react differently. I think you have to price that reaction in to the consequences of, of those deaths. So if somebody manages to kill 3,000 people in D.C. or Los Angeles tomorrow and you know, wave the flag of ISIS in celebration afterwards, just how much will our reaction to that cost us in terms of resources in terms of lives lost in foreign wars, both necessary and unnecessary? Is it going to be another multi-trillion dollar, multi-decade adventure in fighting the war on terror? Whereas if, if 3,000 people had died based on a hurricane, we would just shed some tears and then clean up and start over. That difference in reaction is a reality that I don't think we are going to change. And so it's part of the consequences of terrorism. So I think you're exactly right on that, that it would change not just those things, but really in the most fundamental way, the character of our nation. We as Americans would change if if uh, after a kind of a terrorist at attack of that magnitude. And that's not something that you can easily recover in this kind of climate of, of fear and suspicion. Um, and that's why, and I think we would, let's say, there was an attack by a white nationalist domestically, I don't think that would change the character of our, of our nation in quite the same way as if it was um, a so-called soldier of the ISIS caliphate or whatever. So that I think is worth pricing in. That's a really good point. And that's why I also... Th Let me add one thing to that, because I think it there's a reason why it wouldn't. I think under certain, if you change a few things, I think it could. I mean, it could lead to a civil war if you yeah. tuned all the dials correctly. But the reason why 
a Timothy McVeigh just seems like a crazy person and kind of a one-off rather than part of a a movement is that he really was more or less just a crazy person and a one-off and not part of a similar movement because the KKK and white nationalism has been, it probably still is, it's just been magnified by press attention at the moment. It has been a tiny fringe movement in this country. You can't say that theocracy in the Muslim world or the desire for a caliphate or religious triumphalism in the Muslim world is the fringe of the fringe. In fact, what you can say is when you ask poll questions, you can, you can find that, that a majority of British Muslims you know, think the, the Danish cartoonists should be in prison, or you know, 40% of British Muslims want to live under Sharia. You get a scary picture of a what Samuel Huntington famously or infamously called a clash of civilizations. So it has geopolitical meaning, whereas when someone like a white nationalist in the U.S., commits an atrocity, it signifies mostly that there was something wrong with his mind or his micro-cultural subset more than it suggests the character of the future for us. Yeah, I, I totally agree with, agree with you on that. And, and one other thing that I think you brought up earlier, which I, which I agree with, is we have, to, we have to really reckon with the fact that Obama's policies um, in Syria or lack thereof, and his particular mm. approach to terrorism has contributed to things like Brexit. And, you know, I, and it's an argument that's unpopular on the left. And I can, you know, I don't want to be like overly mean to Obama in this respect, but I do think that can we imagine a counterfactual history where Brexit, instead of passing by a couple percentage points, lost by a couple percentage points. I can imagine that alternative history if there was less of a refugee crisis from Syria. And that in turn Mm. would mean less of a rise in anti-immigrant sentiment and the rise of the far right and mobilizing this constituency that wasn't just fearful about refugees coming in, but also this general sense of insecurity in this era of ISIS. Something feels like it's wrong. And this is I think something that Obama could never really appreciate on the emotional level. He was, he's such a cerebral, rational technocrat that I think he has trouble understanding the irrational mind, something that most of us have at least part of, part of our days. And I wonder, did it have to be this way? I don't, did Brexit have to happen? Did Trump have to happen? And let's be, Hmm. and Part of Obama's legacy is Trump. And this to me seems obvious. So the fact that Trump comes after eight years of Obama, that can't be totally coincidental. One must have something to do with the other. But we're not really willing to have that conversation. Um, At least most people I don't think are. And to me, that's one of the biggest failures of Obama's vision of the world, that he was not sufficiently appreciative of the insecurity in so many ways, whether it's about refugees, about economics, about immigrants, whatever. And he couldn't speak Mm. to that fear or to empathize with with it and do something about it in places, for example, like Syria. This brings me to another seeming paradox of your position, because, you know, while you urge us to accept what 
these various populations want in other cultures along democratic lines. I've heard you seem fairly hawkish with respect to our continued meddling in the Middle East and, and what you think the U.S. in particular should be doing militarily in the world. And so I want to bring you to the, to the, the moment that you just referred to, which was, again, it, it is very surprising to me how little we talk about it, because it seems just, again, if you're going to talk about counterfactuals, it's one of those moments that had it gone differently, you could imagine almost everything being different. And this comes to to Obama's red line in Syria, right? You know, he, he drew the red line. He said if Assad used chemical weapons, that would be crossing it, and there would be a robust response from the U.S., as we know, Assad called our bluff, and we did more or less nothing. Let's talk about that. What, I mean, what do you think we, we should have done in Syria? What do you think we should do now, given what we haven't done up until this moment? And it seems to me that we are now suffering a kind of Vietnam syndrome once again, that we, have, we fought these two wars, one of which was almost certainly unnecessary, one of which one could argue was necessary, but the, the results are, are, are at best ambiguous. and. The world, Assad and the Iranian regime and Putin and, and everyone else included, more or less knows that our appetite for foreign adventures is non-existent now. Just tell me what you think we could have done and what you yeah, think so we should be doing. Yes, you alluded to the fact that I, I might have, from the perspective of some, um, unex <laughs> let's say, unexpected positions on the use of U.S. military force I mean, hawkish is pejorative, but yeah, I guess I am mm. pretty hawkish on certain things. And I don't know, it could just be, I think that I sometimes feel in my own work and analysis that I'm dealing with a kind of internal tension. And I, I do try to be somewhat aware of what might seem like inconsistencies in my worldview. And I think that there was a time where I felt a need to be like to impose a kind of consistency. But now sometimes I just have to tell people like, yeah, um, this might not make to total sense to you or even 100 percent to me. But I can hold positions which, which may seem to be in tension with each other. So um, I, I wrote a piece, uh, I guess it came out a month ago. Uh, when I when I think some of us thought the election results would be different, where I essentially made the case in mm -hmm. the Atlantic for the use of U.S. military force, that a better world is not possible without the U.S. military. And th that kind of pissed right. a lot of people off. I think that um, I don't want to get into identity politics, but it may be that because of who I am, I can say things and I get a little bit more leeway, I don't know. So part of this has to do with, with my formative experiences. So the Iraq, during the Iraq war, I was, I was like a lot of people in their kind of younger years. I was a kind of anti-imperialist. I was reading, I was getting into Noam Shamsky and um, I was tempted <laughs> by some of those ideas. And I guess something really clicked with me. I don't know if you remember this. There was this mass coordinated protest against the Iraq war. You know, more than 10 million people are protesting in major capitals. And I remember and I 
I personally was part of this movement and I was organizing, helping sit-ins, teach-ins, whatever against the war. The war happened and I remember really going through a period of reflection and thinking to myself, even though we had the masses, we had millions on our side, we couldn't stop a war. And this is a bit of an oversimplification, but on the other hand, you had so-called neocons who were a much smaller number who were able to influence policy from within and to realize this vision, which I think was ultimately destructive in the case of Iraq. And it made me think that Well, first of all, people power isn't necessarily the thing or being being anti-establishment and being in this kind of mode of perpetual protest is actually kind of self-defeating. That was one thing. And then adding that to, I think, my lessons from 9-11. And I knew instinctively when I was young before 9-11 that, hey, the U.S. supports a lot of autocratic regimes. And that bothered me. I knew there was something wrong about that. And I'm a child of immigrants. My parents grew up under an authoritarian regime, although that's not the reason they immigrated. But still, I mean, that was something they had to grow up with and it's affected them. So I think that I've just been very attuned to this idea that I want America to live up to its ideals But where I think a lot of people on the left after the Iraq war, they said the U.S. does bad things abroad. So the U.S. should just get out of get out of the Middle East. I had a very different response. My response was there are bad interventions, but there are also good interventions. U.S. military force can be used for bad, but it can also be used for good. And this leads me to my second non-negotiable. So I mentioned earlier in our conversation, I just pretty much have two. Um, The second one is I feel very strongly morally about uh, mass slaughter, mass killing. And of course, that would include genocide. And um, I do believe that the international community and that and usually the international community is just another way of saying the U.S. plus other people who are on board um, have a moral obligation to stop mass killing if we can, if we if we have the capability to diminish the Assad regime's ability to kill, I do think it is a moral imperative. Um, And if we lose that non-negotiable, so the stuff that we were discussing earlier, some people might see those as complete red lines. And I understand that viewpoint when it comes to Islamists coming to power. But one thing that I don't think anyone should disagree on or about is that mass slaughter is bad. But apparently there are people on the left who find ways to be apologists for the Assad regime. I find this remarkable. I'm not saying people who oppose military, I don't wanna, I don't wanna conflate those two. I think that reasonable people can disagree on military intervention, but when you cross the line into um, you know, ap- apologetics for the Assad regime, that I, I I don't know how to make sense of that. If you were a leftist and the left was supposed to be morally responsible when it came to a kind of internationalism and supporting human rights abroad and speaking out against right wing dictatorships in Latin America. But there's just a very troubling inconsistency there that I've noticed more and more. And some in the some on the right now are being infected with it because of uh, the sympathy towards Putin, and even Trump seems to be willing to ally maybe with the Assad regime in fighting ISIS, which I think would be 
which would be dangerous because it sort of absolves us of this moral responsibility. It's just, it's such a tangle, that the, the civil war in Syria, that it's very hard. You have to give a lot of latitude to the people who just don't see how our involvement could make anything better, given Russia's presence there. And, you know, I think people, this was a very common refrain I got from pro-Trump people when it looked like Hillary might be president, that she was going to start World War III because she had said that we should enforce a no-fly zone in Syria. That was just a de facto expression of willingness, even eagerness, to get into a shooting war with Russia. And it's just a short hop there to nuclear Armageddon. It was incredibly common. At a certain point, yeah. it became the most common thing I heard from Trump people, apart from she's a criminal who belongs in prison for her email scandal, she's going to get us into World War III. And it's easy to see the concern there. I mean, what, what do you think we should do at this moment with respect to Syria? You know, in some ways it's too late. I mean, I, so, you know, once history has happened, you can't really undo its effects. So I think that at, at, at some point you just have to say, it's still going to be really bad regardless of what we choose now. And this is the danger of dithering, of waiting to act decisively, is that the longer you wait, the less options you have and the less possible or plausible, even vaguely okay outcomes you have available to you. And um, and I think we have to live with this really for the rest of our lives. I think that the refugee crisis, for example, will change the very nature of the German state and German society for the rest of our lives. And mm. have we thought through what that really means? Um, it threatens the future of the European project. It already has. It may already be too late for the European project. In terms of if, if Hillary had won, I would have supported um, you know, military action against the Assad regime, not necessarily in the service of regime change. And I think that was sort of um, a straw man that Obama has often resorted to that, oh, people who oppose a Syria policy, they just want to do a kind of, you know, mass. No, first of all, no one's talking about a, an Iraq style invasion. And regime change is not necessarily what proponents of intervention were calling for. Many of us, myself included, were saying that the only way you can get Assad and those who support him to make any real compromises in diplomacy on the negotiating table is by having a credible threat of military force. Otherwise, what's his incentive? He mm. thinks that he can win, and he is in fact winning now. And I think if we look at previous conflicts, with Milosevic, for example, in Bosnia and the resulting Dayton Accords, that there wasn't regime change. That happened obviously later. Um, but what happened is that Milosevic was forced to compromise. And I think that was the lens with which we should have understood the Syrian conflict. And it's also human nature. Why would Assad do the right thing? Why would Russia do the right thing just because we're telling them to? And I remember hearing kind of absurd expositions of this from Obama and others in the administration that our leverage with Russia is that they will realize the fault of their ways because they will end up in a quagmire and because they're rational actors, they will decide that quagmires aren't good. 
Mm. And this, I think, has been endemic of our foreign policy approach for such a long time. We assume that we assume that other actors are as rational as Obama is. And Obama, I think, projects that he superimposes that. And it's contrary to a lot of what we know about human nature. And that's why most people are not acting like Obama, whether it's Putin, Erdogan, Viktor Orban in Hungary, you name it. Right. So I think that some of those starting premises were were very were very problematic. And even the idea that Obama could sort of assume the voice of Putin and sort of get in his head, even though he comes from a different set of starting assumptions. Anyway, that's sort of but I think that a credible threat of military force, especially when it came to Aleppo, because right now it's it's um, Aleppo seems to be lost permanently, mm. perhaps. And that is the biggest victory for the Assad regime, probably since 2012. I think we could have prevented that. And I think that history will judge us and Obama. And it's not just even if you don't care about the Syrian people, the fact that, as we've talked about, Syria is so closely connected to broader instability in the Middle East, in Europe, affecting even our own politics at home that you have to ask yourself, can we imagine a different history if we had approached this very differently early on? And not just when it comes to Syria in the narrow sense of targeting the Assad regime's military infrastructure, but also taking ISIS more seriously earlier on and not dismissing them as either the JV team or even now. I I think that this administration still talks about ISIS in a way that I'm uncomfortable with, where they will dismiss ISIS as a bunch of thugs and fanatics, as if to say, oh, look at these guys, they aren't to be taken seriously. The arc of history will defeat them. Who does this bending of the arc of history? This often goes unsaid. Finally, now we're making real progress, but we have to ask ourselves, did ISIS really have to capture large swaths of both Iraq and Syria and stay in power for several years before we were able to defeat them on the ground? Are we doing everything you think we should do with respect to ISIS at this point? I mean, now we're making progress. Um, again, I, I think that some of this could have happened earlier, but um, it seems that on the, on when it comes to the battlefield dynamics, ISIS will lose out ultimately. What I'm more worried about now is our perpetual problem as Americans, our inability to do post-conflict planning. The fact that the stakeholders involved have different ideas of what happens the day after. And the fact that we as Americans have not committed a lot of time, energy, and resources to thinking about the day after, because Obama, what would that require? It would require us to be more involved. It would require us to be more interventionist. Obama doesn't like being more involved in the Middle East. That's sort of his starting premise. He wants to outsource that to other actors. But the way I see it is we have the misfortune of having bad allies in the Middle East who don't share our interests, who don't share our values. Do we really want to be outsourcing post-conflict reconstruction to a bunch of problematic actors that kind of hate each other? Or do we want to play a more active leadership role? But you know what that requires? Having a conversation as Americans about, it's a bad word now, or bad two words, I should say, nation building. Perhaps we can say state building or thinking about how we can help uh, promote good governance 
in these post-conflict environments. But the fact that there's a taboo in American public discourse in, in talking about helping countries rebuild by committing real resources, that to me is a major liability. What would you say to someone who's just fundamentally skeptical that interventions can ever have a desired effect and who would think that the only thing we need to do is break our addiction to oil and then just ignore the Middle East for the rest of human history. Just get to a point where we have no dependence on Saudi Arabia in particular, but really anything going on there one way or the other, and then just practice a benign neglect of the whole region. So I actually, I get this question a lot. Um, and it's it's sort of a tough one to answer because I mean, I obviously have a stake in a lot of this. It's kind of my job. So obviously, I'm going to be more invested in foreign policy and America's role in the world. But I think that there's two things. One is the moral argument. Are we as Americans comfortable living in America where if hundreds of thousands of people are being slaughtered, whether it's in Bosnia, Kosovo, Rwanda, Syria, Libya, whatever, are we comfortable living in a world where America is no longer seen as a moral leader, as a country that no longer can claim moral authority. That's one. And I know that some people will say, well, Shetty, you know, fuck the moral authority, mm. whatever. Okay. So the second, the second argument, the more practical one is however much you try to isolate the Middle East, you know, what happens in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East. And I think that Obama wanted that to be the case he was hoping that the Middle East would matter less and he could refocus attention on Asia and other parts of the world that he sees as more strategically vital in the long run. But even he was dragged back into the Middle East because the Middle East matters. The spillover effects are tremendous. And, you know, we've talked about the effects on the European project. And I think a lot of us were, were you know, offering this warning early on in the Syrian conflict this stuff cannot be contained. The Middle East is not the place where you come in and you say, hey, there's going to be a civil war. It's going to be contained in these borders. These things have a way of metastasizing in ways that we should have been able to predict, but I think senior officials were not really willing to contend with, because if they had, the next step would have been, hey, we have to get more involved in the Middle East to prevent these issues from getting worse. But I hope, I hope that the lesson of the last eight years is that you can't let the Middle East fester on its own or else it will affect the very integrity of our own democracies as Americans, as, as Europeans. And I don't know if we can undo this far right surge. That's going to take time to really counter so in that sense, the damage has already been done. A couple more questions, kind of short answer questions here before I, I let you go. And again, you've been truly generous with your time. It's been, it's been great to talk to you. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. This is a question that, that I've never had an answer for. What is the difference between the Muslim community in the U.S. and the Muslim communities in Western Europe with respect to radicalization and the, the liability of being radicalized. It has always seemed obvious that countries like Belgium and the UK and France have a, a very different problem, a different, it's the same problem, but the, it's a probably an order of magnitude worse 
than we have in the U.S. with respect to radicalization. I've made a few hand-waving attempts to explain that, but... So if we had talked maybe a month ago before the election, I would have cited the U.S. as offering a model of Muslim integration. I think there's a lot to be proud of. And as someone who is who is an American Muslim, I've seen that firsthand. And it's been impressive and it's been inspiring to me. Um, and I think there is a reason for it. There, there's many, but one, one that I'll mention, which is perhaps most relevant, is the U.S. is better at integrating Muslims. But then the question is why? And some of that has to do with American attitudes towards religion. The U.S. is not coming in and saying to conservative, intensely practicing American Muslims, hey, you guys have to be liberal or you guys have to get on board with X, Y, and Z. There's a kind of respect for public expressions of religiosity and religion that others may not be comfortable with. And that, that also applies to Christian evangelicals and Orthodox Jews on any number of issues. But I would never question the Americanness of a Christian evangelical who is homophobic or is anti-gay marriage. That bothers me. I'm against, I'm against that viewpoint, but I'm not going to question who they are as Americans in terms of their actual identity. And I think it's similar in the sense that you can be fully Muslim and fully American, and no one is telling you that you have to choose between one or the other. What worries me about countries like France is that it's, that's essentially the proposition that's being proposed, that if you are a Muslim woman who may otherwise be um, quite broad-minded or even secular on any number of issues, but you happen to wear the headscarf and maybe you like, I don't know, going to the beach in a burkini or whatever it happens to be. The French state and French society to some extent is telling you that you are not fully French. You are not like the rest of us because you have made a personal choice to wear the hijab. And I'm talking here about someone who presumably, let's take the example of someone who out of their own volition and maybe even against the wishes of their more secular family. I, I know many examples, both in Europe and the US of, of young women who decided to wear the hijab against the wishes of their parents. So, um, you know, I, I that's where the aggressive French model of laicite, I think, can be counterproductive because it, it's very ideological and it's narrowing and it doesn't allow for a broader sense of French identity. And I, I worry about that. And I, I worry that many French Muslims are coming out of this experience feeling that they are under that they are under attack and they're not being treated as equal citizens or as fully French. And I think that's also a problem more broadly in Europe in the sense that nationality and nationalism and being a citizen of a country, there's more of an eth ethnic or linguistic cast to it where there isn't that or there's not supposed to be that in the U.S. that anyone can really become American. And I've watched, for example, my own parents become American. They seem American to me. They feel American to me. Um, because they believe in the American project and they feel passionately about it. And they're willing to, if things go wrong under Trump, um, they want to they wanna do whatever they can 
to fight for the values that they believe in through political activism, again, the, 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 through protests, through through voting, through volunteering. And that that's an exciting, and I've been able to watch that almost in real time. Mm. So I think there's something we can learn from that. And do, do you think there's any difference in the demographics of immigration that explain the difference? Are we drawing from different populations in terms of the immigrants who come to or have, have up until this moment come to the U.S. from Muslim-majority countries? So there's definitely a class and economic element. So um, my, my parents, um, my, my dad is still an engineer, as many, mm-hmm. as many Egyptian parents are. And my mom used to be a doctor. So, I mean, uh, and, I, and I think that at least when it comes to um, those of Arab origin or from the subcontinent, you do see relatively high levels of educational attainment, and that and and that definitely plays a role. We did just point out, you know, now several hours ago. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that, you, that, you caught me. You caught me. <laughs> that education. I mean, the, if anything, the variable cuts the other way, and we're not talking about the poorest of the poor who are being radicalized for the most part, but reasonably literate, well-educated people. So I think it I think it's a little bit different when we're talking about minorities in the West. And mm-hmm. this is maybe something I should have mentioned earlier, but I think there's less of a threat when it comes to immigration. There's an interesting hypothetical of what America or Britain would look like if the population was 60 percent Muslim. And I can understand people being concerned that in that case, society might look a little bit different and you may have let's say muslim parties that are not made that are that that have a particular vision and there may be illiberal elements of it hypothetically but i worry about kind of descending into those hypotheticals because for the rest of our lives there is no way you'll get even close to a majority muslim population in the us there is nothing that can happen immigration wise or conversion wise that would lead to that. So I worry. So it's an interesting, from an intellectual standpoint, mm. I think that would be a kind of um, intriguing counterfactual to contend with. But we also have to be realistic. And I think Muslims as minorities in the West is different than Muslims as majorities in, say, the Middle East or South and Southeast Asia. But you wouldn't say the same thing about every country in Europe necessarily at this point, would you? Maybe a majority is too heavy a lift, but a significant enough minority in countries like France or Germany going forward post-migrant crisis, that the political dynamic changes, or at least is, is, is not similar to what's going to be true of the U.S. for any foreseeable future. Yeah, but even if you take France, for example, I believe that the, the Muslim population is somewhere like 7 or 8%, which yeah. is quite a bit more than the U.S., obviously. But again, I mean, there's no real risk of French Muslims taking over the government and making it, I mean, as, as some sometimes I think, there, there's sometimes this alarmist rhetoric um, where people pose that as a possibility. That can't happen. Um, and obviously, if you had 60% Muslims, not all of them would want Islam to play a larger role in public life. Maybe many of them would, but there are also um, French Muslims who are not religious, they're quite secular, um, and don't even sometimes identify as theologically Muslim. 
So I can understand it being, I think that's precisely one issue why it is more, more of a concern in France is simply because the numbers are a little bit different. But I don't think that should give cause to, I think, an alarmism, which is just simply unproductive. Well, listen, Shadi, again, you've been extremely generous with your time, and it's a real pleasure to speak with you. And needless to say, given the outcome of the recent election, I think your voice is even more important given pendulum swings in every conceivable direction domestically. So it's great to have started the conversation with you, and I certainly hope it's not the last time we, we talk about these issues because they're, as you know, not going away. And likewise, Sam, thanks so much for having me. And I, I do hope that we can continue on talking about these issues. We'll certainly have, I think, unfortunately, a lot more to talk about when it comes to Islam's role in politics in the coming years. Before you jump off, is there any website or Twitter address or any other contact online that you want people to know? Yeah, sure. My I, I'm pretty active on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is just my name, so Shadi Hamid, S H A D I H A M I D, and you know, feel free to say hello on on Twitter. And um, I also have my Brookings webpage, which has my most recent um, articles and interviews and things like that. So you could just search that Shadi Hamid Brookings and find that. Once again, Shadi, many thanks for your time. Thank you, Sam. 